Welcome to the Careers, Employability and Skills podcast from Queen's University, Belfast. This episode was recorded during a webinar entitled An Introduction to Cultural Awareness and Sensitivity in collaboration with the Global Opportunities Team and is hosted by Thomas Smith from the Language Centre at Queen's. Welcome to the session. Today's session on an introduction to cultural awareness and sensitivity. Um, we'll be looking at, uh, I suppose, an introduction to areas relating to um, cultural awareness, how we, we can develop our other, our, how we can develop our cultural awareness in ourselves. Um, and we'll look at some of the key areas um, for consideration whenever we're considering culture and cultural difference and things like that. Um, I'm just going to give it a minute um, just for now. Um, to see if there's anybody else just joining the session to begin with. Um, but whilst we're waiting, I'll introduce myself. My name is uh, Tom Smith. I'm the manager of the Language Centre at Queen's University, Belfast. Um, and I've been given, giving uh, targeted cultural awareness training sessions as well as generic um, cultural awareness training sessions um, for a number of years. I, I guess the first one that I ever really did was about seven or eight years ago. And that's developed over the past um, seven or eight years um, with a lot of different kinds of offers, specific offers looking at cultural awareness in the context of engineering, um, nursing and midwifery, uh, medicine, psychology, sociology, different areas like that where we look specifically at how culture and cultural difference can impact on um, the professional world and can impact on our understandings of our own fields. Today's session will be um, a quite a general session and like I say it will be an introductory session. It's an introduction to cultural awareness and sensitivity um, and we have two hours I think to get through all of the materials that I'd like to share with you. There's a couple of activities in there as well. If you can, um, in the second half of the training, you will need a pen and paper um, at the ready, but certainly if you don't have that now, you don't have to be scrambling to get it. Um, just before I start, <clears throat> something that I do say very often um, in cultural awareness workshops, which very often or normally, ordinarily pre-COVID, um, would always have been workshop style trainings where we would have been in the same space and obviously it's disappointing that we can't necessarily do that today um, but that doesn't mean that we can't interact and certainly there is a chat option um, which I would encourage all of you to use at any point as relevant or maybe if I'm asking a question um, and you want to give quick answers to that or your thoughts on that your comments on that please do feel free to use the chat at any point and I will try and check in there and make sure I'm not missing anybody's comments um, and you also, I think, have the option to request to speak, which I would really encourage you to take up if you feel so moved to do so. If there's something that I'm saying that you're interested in, that you have something you'd like to add to it, um, or you have a question, a query, a comment, or indeed, um, I suppose the, the big prize will go to anybody that disagrees with me. Um, anybody that wants to disagree with me on something, please feel enabled to do so. This is a safe space um, and I would really love to hear from you. So um, otherwise, I'm just kind of speaking to a screen myself. So please do feel free to interact um, and to chat in the chat screen, um, which you can access just on the right hand side of the presentation. OK, so um, I think it's probably uh, fair enough for me to move on with the presentation and to get started. Um, but like I say, once again, you're very welcome to this session and please do feel free to interact. Cultural awareness training sessions, the workshops certainly work best whenever they are interactive, whenever people are sharing their thoughts as well and their questions. Um, it's, it's, it doesn't ever work best whenever it's just me lecturing you about the topic area because it's such a huge area, such a diverse area. There are so many different areas that we could look at and that we don't have time to look at in two hours. Um, but I think really the goal of cultural awareness training before we begin now, I suppose it's to develop our cultural empathy, but it is to develop as individuals. Um, there is no consistent way that everybody should try and develop their cultural awareness. It's really about your ability to reflect on your own understanding of things, um, the fact that culture plays a role in, in everybody's life and that it's impacting on everybody um, in different ways, but in the same way. 
Um, thanks, Rory, for just reinforcing on the chat there um, for any questions. Um, so like I say, today, really what we want to take away from it is how can we reflect a little bit on how we communicate, how we interact, what our biases are. We'll talk about bias a little bit later on um, and how we can use that information to prevent, um, I suppose, intercultural misunderstanding whenever you're maybe working, researching, um, working in a professional environment or even studying or becoming friends with in a social context, people from different cultural backgrounds. How can we make those interactions um, perhaps more effective and not allow any biases that we might have um, to impact on those in a way that we perhaps um, don't intend for them to? So I'll do a very quick kind of brief run over of um, some of the areas that we're going to look at today. Um, to begin with and to introduce what we're talking about, we will look at definitions of culture. Um, we won't look at 50 definitions of culture listed one after the other. But we'll look at an idea of what do we think culture is? What are we talking about whenever we're talking about culture? So that we can move on and develop that and build that. Um, we'll look at this idea of us and them, this idea that it is seemingly the human condition to, um, to familiarize yourself with um, a familiar group, a familiar societal group, a familiar cultural group, the group that you are most exposed to, if you like, particularly in your development year, your developing years. Um, and the whole idea of us and them, what I am versus what I am not, what we are, whatever we refers to versus what they are not. That is a very human idea. We've seen that throughout human history. We've seen that do a lot of damage. Um, and we've seen some more heartwarming stories, I suppose, related to that as well. Um, but we'll look at that concept of us and them, the other um, versus the familiar. Um, and then we'll look at problem solving with some of the information, some of the ideas that we're sharing. What can we do with that information to maybe improve and to look forward and, and improve more beyond this session as well? <clears throat> we'll also look at understanding the impact of culture. So we'll accept, first of all, that we are all victims, if you like, to use a turn of phrase, of our own culture. We can't wash our culture off ourselves. Our culture is very much the result of our lived experiences, of our experiences um, within our lives on this planet and what they have told us about the world, what, we, what they have told us and encouraged us um, to believe is a good way to live your life, a good way to behave, the right value to hold, the right belief system to hold, the right faith to pursue, and, and those kinds of ideas, um, and how they are different and how they can impact, like I say, on our understanding of the world and others' understanding of the world and how they can be different as well. Uh, we'll look at effective communication. We'll spend quite a bit of time towards the end of the session um, looking, I suppose, perhaps more at that tangible skill set of how can I improve my communication, generally speaking, but also how can I improve my communication when I'm communicating with people um, coming from different parts of the world, different cultural backgrounds, speaking English as a second language or you know, whenever we are not communicating with the um, mutual first language, um, some of the mechanical things that we can change um, and some of the tactics that we can implore um, whenever we're having difficulties in those situations. And I suppose that's one of the, the key takeaways, I suppose, from developing your cultural awareness, um, that empathy, that ability to focus on the person that you're communicating with <clears throat> rather than focusing on yourself and what you're saying, the words that you're saying. Um, I've already mentioned cultural empathy. I think I'll probably mention it quite a few times throughout the training. Um, it is a core kind of tenet of um, this idea, this approach to developing your cultural awareness, um, cultural awareness itself being an approach perhaps rather than a skill set. Um, and I'll come back to that in a minute. So that's a kind of brief, brief overview of um, some of the areas that we will be looking at and the order that they will come in. Um, we won't focus so much on cultural adjustment, although I will certainly mention culture shock um, quite briefly towards the second half um, of the session. Um, 
in terms of learning outcomes then, and these can be, I suppose, useful um, if you're considering, hi there, <laughs> sorry, just getting a delivery. Um, these can be useful uh, more generally beyond this session in really breaking down, I suppose, at a core level, what are we talking about when we're talking about developing our cultural awareness? We're very often talking generally about understanding bias, the fact that it exists, the different types of bias, subconscious bias, unconscious bias, conscious bias, confirmation bias, what that looks like, why are we always more likely to agree with an idea that reinforces ideas that we already have? That's quite a logical answer to that question. But the idea of bias always plays a role, I think, whenever you're developing your cultural awareness um, and your cultural empathy, your ability to, particularly in a difficult situation or in a challenging situation, not just come at the situation from your own experience of it. This is frustrating because I'm not able to communicate an idea effectively or for whatever other reason it might be frustrating, but your ability to stop and consider perhaps more holistically the experience of the person that you're trying to communicate with and what you're trying to achieve from that communication. Empathy can often um, really help us with our approach to that, with um, improving on our behavior in those contexts. Um, and it's something, these ideas will not be completely new to you, and it is something that I believe many of you will probably have considered before, um, but we're gonna consider it in a targeted way today, and hopefully that will be beneficial for you in moving forward. We'll look at improve, as I mentioned, improving communication across both linguistic and cultural borders. Um, that'll really dominate the second half of the session. <clears throat> and we'll also look at the potential impact of cultural difference, as we've mentioned. So whenever we've finished um, kind of agreeing on the concept of what culture is and why we're talking about it today, we will look at the potential impact that it can have um, and how we can um, perhaps be a little bit more effective in overcoming some of the challenges there. Um, and that's the final point, actually, problem solving, considering how to find solutions to potential challenges. Very quickly, I'd just like to spend a little bit of time on this slide. Um, this was a slide that I brought in um, from a different presentation that I gave to colleagues uh, at Cambridge University around um, you know, why cultural awareness training specifically is so important in a professional environment, in a social environment, and, and really specifically in a tertiary education environment at university level. Um, and I think for, for you guys, I, I, I'm, I'm familiar that um, I think all of your undergraduate um, or postgraduate perhaps students at Queen's um, so all of you, I suppose, are in a similar boat. Um, you're currently developing your skill set. You're working very hard on your um, on your own chosen degree uh, course of study. Um, and you're also preparing as well, I would say, um, not just for you know a professional career in your chosen field, as you might be aspiring towards, um, but also how, generally speaking, can you make yourself as employable as possible? How can you put yourself in the best position whenever it does come to that time, maybe a number of years down the line, that you have an interview, not just for a job to pay the bills, but for a job that really um, excites you, that you're enthusiastic about, and that you would really like to uh, develop a career in that line when the right job comes up. <clears throat> when an opportunity like that comes up, you really want to have um, all of your ducks in a row, if you like. You really want to feel like you're prepared and feel like whenever the interview comes around that you're able to set yourself apart and do yourself justice and underline your skill sets. <clears throat> Excuse me. Sorry. Quite a dry cough. Um, just take a quick drink of water. Um, and really, some of these headlines, they just give you a flavor of, um, I suppose, the current situation um, in the world of work, which, uh, or I suppose, particularly in the world of recruitment, where we're seeing an increase in multinational companies and employers looking to employ um, people that have uh, an ability or a, an ability to not, not only demonstrate their cultural awareness, but demonstrate what they can bring to the company outside of their specific um, skill set. So if it's an engineering role, 
um, okay, you have an engineering degree and you have this experience and that is excellent. We are a multinational engineering firm. You will find yourself communicating with um, our colleagues and our clients um, across the world and talk to us about your communication skills. Talk to us about your um, intercultural competence, your ability to communicate with people from different cultural backgrounds. And often that can be a question that stumps people a little bit. Um, and it shouldn't, it's not a difficult question. It's just perhaps not a question that we spend as much time focusing on as you know, highlighting um, you know, what, is, what, are you, what is your experience with using different IT platforms or what's your general IT competence like? Um, these are questions that we expect in interviews, but then sometimes um, and increasingly perhaps we can be surprised by some of the other questions that are born out of um, the fact that we're seeing a lot of companies working internationally, certainly a lot of really successful, successful and world-leading companies. Um, and also within that, we're seeing at the very top level in those companies. So Google, for example, um, recently um, came out to say and to share with everyone that whenever they considered their, their top level management and they looked across there, um, the key skill set that, that came out of all of those individuals that um, that would set them aside wasn't specifically their um, their IT competence, their web development competence, their their understanding of technical issues. It was their ability to communicate. It was their ability to communicate specifically with um, their offices and their clients ac across the globe effectively. So it really was coming down to that intercultural competence, that cultural awareness point. Um, and so it is something within companies that um, that is being talked about, that um, people are looking to improve and companies are looking to develop in that way. And certainly they are looking to employ people that can um, that can reflect on their own ability in this way, that show that they have um, you know, previously considered it at the very least, um, but also that it's something that they're enthusiastic about. Um, and so that is, that is something that has changed. That's not necessarily, or wasn't necessarily the case uh, 20 years ago. Um, and so that is a real-time change. And I think that that's only going to increase that trend going forward. So it is something, number one, that it can be useful to be able to talk about on an individual level. Hopefully all of the content that I look at on this session today will be useful to all of you in some way. But really the goal of it is to, um, to provide you with some stimulus, stimulus to take away with you for consideration after the session so that you can continue to engage and to continue to develop your own cultural awareness. Like I said at the beginning, I am still developing my own cultural awareness despite the fact that I have spent the last seven or eight years as a cultural awareness trainer and I have read endlessly um, around the topic and, and consumed content online and um, you know watched series, documentaries, listen to podcasts, done as much as I possibly could to really embed myself in the area, I'm still developing my own personal cultural awareness and understanding my own biases and how they can impact on um, my interactions with others um, on a daily basis. Cultural awareness is an approach. <clears throat> so, I mean, that's not to say that you can't refer to it as a skill set, as a competence, and it often is. Um, but I think it's useful in the context of today's session to agree that cultural awareness is an approach, and it is an approach that we develop on an ongoing way, like I've just said. In order to develop our approach as individuals, I think the things we should consider are how do we understand the world around us? And what is the filter between, um, I suppose, our mind and understanding the world around us? What are the values that we hold? What are the things that are important to us? And how do we react whenever we see things that perhaps conflict with those ideas? Um, what is our immediate reaction? What is our immediate thought process? Not necessarily what is our obvious open reaction, our physical reaction or our spoken reaction, but what happens in our minds? How do we understand the world around us? How do we reflect on that understanding? Um, so that's really 
you know, around that's really the point of the conversation of developing your own cultural awareness. Your your default understanding of the world is there; it exists already. But how can you reflect on that to perhaps improve it, or to perhaps achieve something that you're trying to achieve? Um, whether that be you know enhanced communication, enhanced understanding, broadening your own horizons, um, or whatever that might be. And what can we do with that information? So whenever we're reflecting on our own understanding and we think, oh yeah, well actually I suppose I've had a lot of exposure to that in my life, um, to that area. And, and so I feel positively towards that. Um, that's fine, we're reflecting on that. How do we uh, reflect on it and what can we do with the information? Well, where might that be an issue or where might that not be helpful? Where might that stop me from um, understanding a different viewpoint, a conflicting viewpoint? Um, because it's been proven time and time again in research that um, collaborative efforts to understand an idea, um, <clears throat> and by collaborative I mean multicultural uh, efforts made by multicultural teams, are often much more uh, successful um, and can often have tangibly um, better outcomes than perhaps monocultural groups. Um, so how do we reflect on our understanding and what can we do with that information? How do we develop and improve? How do we understand what our own individual areas for improvement are rather than generic areas that everybody should be improving on as well? Okay, um, I'm just going to come back from this slide for a second. Um, and I would like to get a sense of the fact that there might be people here and there might be people listening to me. Um, and the first uh, activity, very quick starter for 10 points question that I would like to ask everybody that's on the session is, um, when I say the word culture, imagine I am your psychiatrist and you're lying on my psychiatrist sofa um, and I'm asking you a few questions, you're answering me, and I say, okay, we're gonna do some word association. I want you to say the first words that come to mind whenever I say a word. The first word that I'm going to give you is culture. What are the first words that come to your mind whenever I say to you the word culture? What are the first things that you think of? And if you'd like to just type any of your thoughts or any of your responses into the chat window, um, I'll certainly see those coming up. If anybody would like to speak, you're welcome to. But for now, um, perhaps we can um, rely on the chat window. So I'll give you a minute to think about that. Whenever I say culture, what are the first kind of ideas that come to your mind? What are the first things that you think of? whenever uh, you hear the word culture or, or you consider the idea or the concept of culture. Okay, slow to start. I can't see anything in the chat at the minute. Please do feel free to, to enter um, your answers into the chat and I'll certainly, um, there we go. Oh, they're all coming through now. It's like a tidal wave of, uh, of answers. Brilliant. So Stephen, thank you. Language, lifestyle, history and arts very much. So on the nail. Um, Certainly, uh, being the manager of the Language Centre, I think that language um, <clears throat> and culture are, are very much interlinked, intertwined, if you like. Nobody develops their second language skills um, without developing their knowledge of the culture associated with that language and how um, people interact and, and the value systems as well often comes through. Lifestyle, very much. Lifestyle is a, is a big kind of generic umbrella, um, but it, co it covers a lot of things. Um, I'm going to move on to this slide now. Um, and yeah, I think lifestyle can work. It can mean routine. Uh, it can mean the way that we live our lives, the things that we like to do with our time, things like that. History. Our culture isn't just invented for us um, whenever we are born. Cultures evolve over time, but cultures do change over time. Cultures do not stay um, on immovably, if you like, um, similar across time. They, they very much change. And, <clears throat> and we can point to that very easily by looking at different cultural movements um, that have really shifted the way that we perceive the world around us um, in the past. And arts, um, arts, I think very much so, 
cultural exploits, music, theater, performance, uh, painting and, and visual arts and things like that as well, very much shape a culture. And, and whenever we think of other cultures that are distinct to our own, um, we often go to those kinds of areas to identify um, you know, what that culture looks like and feels like as a representative model. Diversity, very much, uh, very much so, Isabel. Um, I think diversity is, is such a key idea, and I, I don't want to, to wander too much into um, diversity training as opposed to cultural awareness training, although there would be a huge overlap on a Venn diagram in some of the key areas. Um, we are better when we are diverse, um, and, and cultural, cultural awareness and the development of cultural awareness is really the hope that we can live in a world um, where, uh, where cultural barriers are not barriers, where we, we don't um, see things through our own lens primarily, but we see things uh, more objectively, or we try to see things more objectively. Uh, Rose, hi. Um, yes, the country that we come from, we very much identify with the familiar culture that we are exposed to, particularly in our developmental years. So if we don't have one of those childhoods where you're perhaps moving around quite a bit and exposed to different cultures, that will really reinforce your idea, uh, not only of your own culture, but of your own character, of your own individuality, of who you are. It's important to note that there are 7.5 or maybe slightly more than that now, billion people in the planet. And we could argue that there are 7.5 different cultures on the planet, um, 7.5 billion different cultures on the planet, um, because everybody is an individual. And that's a really important idea to consider as well, particularly whenever I'm speaking um, kind of quite freely during this session around cultural groups. And I'm talking about cultural groups, um, you know, people in Southeast Asia, for example, versus people in Western Europe. Um, I'm not saying that everybody within that cultural group is the same, and we can say anything that is the same. That, that would indeed be prejudice. That would be stereotyping. Um, however, the country that we, that we grow up in, I think definitely uh, really reinforces um, very often our, our view of the world, how we interpret the world around us. Um, it is very hard to pin down, Rose. There's so many different things that we could say here. It's why it's a good starter question, because there are so many different answers, and they're all equally right. Um, food, language, and behaviors. Food is such an important one, uh, Matthew. I think if anybody considers when they might have traveled to a different place, they might have experienced a little bit of culture shock, but food is such an immediate thing that we can relate to as being distinct. Um, not just the food itself that you're eating, excuse me, sorry. Not just the food itself that we're eating, um, but also the routines, the times that we eat food up. Um, what is dinner time? What is lunchtime? Um, I spent uh, a year of my life living in Spain, and um, I think at the end of the year, I hadn't culturally adapted really very much, and I was still struggling with the different um, the different routines for eating food. Spanish people would eat lunch uh, around one or two, so not that different, but it would be a much heavier meal than we would normally consume for lunch. Mine's normally a tuna sandwich for lunch, um, and then Spanish people would then eat a lot later, maybe 10, half 10, 11 o'clock at night, which is just way past my dinner time. Um, so routines relating to food as well. Um, can often be one. Behaviors, yes. Um, folk dance is a very good one, yeah. Um, again, in with art and music and theater and those kinds of cultural exploits, um, certainly dance is often an int interesting one. And there are some cultures that um, immediately that's the first thing that comes to mind. Whenever I think of Argentina, I think of tango. Um, and I'm not a dancer. I don't know a lot about um, tango. I'm not, I'm not well read on uh, the history of tango, but certainly without being able to explain it, the first thing I think of when I think of Buenos Aires is tango. Um, and so dance can, and you know, specific cultural dances to specific parts of the world, definitely. Francis, that's a great answer. Um, etiquette. Um, so etiquette is really, it's an unwritten set of rules, isn't it? And so much of that is actually quite a good definition um, for what a culture is or what, um, 
what values and and um, ideas around behaviors how they are formed um, within cultures because they're they're formed based on these unwritten rules um, if you like that uh, people that are a member of that cultural group are, are find very easy to access because they have had lived experiences that have exposed them to them many many times before and positively reinforced um, certain ideas of how people should act how people should behave in public and private and in certain spaces um, but the, it's the unwritten element of it that I think is the most important thing to consider. Adam, yes, languages, certainly still agreeing with that one. Um, and festivals, festivals again. Um, if you think of, for example, I've just used Argentina as an example. If you think of um, Brazil and Rio de Janeiro, you'll often think of Carnival. Um, so where you have festivals like that, and obviously we have festivals here as well, um, with feelers and things in this part of the world. And um, the festivals and coming any, 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 anywhere where you have coming together, if you like, of, um, of communities, um, often then reflect something of that culture, whether it's the food that people eat, the music that is played at those festivals, and uh, the language that is spoken and, and things like that. Lucia, um, hi there, nonverbal communication and non-written rules. Yeah, absolutely, it's very similar to the etiquette point on the non-written rules. Um, things that, and, and this is what you will appreciate, I suppose, if you find yourself in a new culture, if you're experiencing culture shock, um, maybe if you move with your research, with your work, or maybe you take a study or work abroad opportunity um, at Queen's and you find yourself all of a sudden for the first time outside of your own native culture, um, it is, it's very much the unwritten rules, it's very much the etiquette that take the time to get used to and that you really need to spend the time um, getting used to. But it can be a really rewarding experience to do so, um, speaking from personal experience. And nonverbal communication, absolutely. There are um, some cultures in which you can communicate um, with almost sign language because um, of the importance and the significance of nonverbal communication. Um, <clears throat> I, I've recognized it in myself, although I had to have somebody else pointed out to me that whenever I speak in English, um, you know, I speak relatively calmly um, and I don't do a lot with my hands. However, immediately whenever I start to speak in Spanish, all of a sudden my hands appear and I start to express myself and my hands are everywhere whenever I'm trying to underline points. And I think it's because I got a sense whenever I was speaking to Spanish people and developing my own Spanish language skills that, um, that they had a sense that if they weren't using their hands to really reinforce it, then sometimes they didn't really mean what they were saying very much. There's that nonverbal importance. Um, also in Italian culture, there are so many, um, I suppose, uh, hand gestures that can be used, let's say across a crowded room to communicate ideas. Um, it's quite complex actually. I, I would recommend people uh, maybe look into it further after and outside of this session. Thank you so much for all of your submissions. The list on the little kind of word map in front of you there is not a list of right answers. It's really just a list of prompts um, for us to consider. Um, I think, where does our culture come from? Our culture is developed throughout our life and it can change, um, it can develop, but really that um, subconscious kind of deeply rooted culture that we, we can't wash off, if you like, that we can't forget or we can't change proactively, um, often forms in our developmental years. So if we think about what we are exposed to most in our developmental years, in our childhood years, and in our teenage years, um, it's really initially our family and our close surroundings, then our initial peer groups, then through our education, the school that we attend, and our peer groups in, in school as they evolved, through our interests, um, if we were particularly sporty, particularly into music, or particularly into um, books and literature, whatever it was that we were um, into in those development years, they often really um, form a, an important role in us understanding who we are as individuals and also us understanding how we should interact with the world around us, um, which is really then our, our culture as, as we would understand it. 
faith and our beliefs can often play a very significant role um, in in culture and 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 certainly the values and the um, the belief kind of structures in there and what we believe to be positive and negative ways to behave um, often can be influenced very heavily by by those kinds of ideas. Um, the idea globalization is often referred to as kind of diluting cultures. I think that often we find that the impact of globalization is that we see um, <clears throat> cultures kind of being more underlined, I feel like, coming more to the fore whenever you see that dilution. Um, and that's an interesting point. Maybe come back to that one a little bit later on. I don't want to lose too much time just now. Like uh, we've already had, um, who was it that said history? Just to to give them the, um, yeah, Stephen, it was the first answer that we had. I think history and customs and what has gone before very much shapes our understanding of who we are on this planet, um, as opposed to who everybody else is, what group we belong to, what group that we identify with, and what set of beliefs and ideas and rules and written rules and unwritten rules, rather, as we pointed out, um, that we kind of sign up to although we never proactively signed up to them. Uh, my name is Thomas Smith. I was born in Belfast in 1987 in the city hospital. My mother was Patricia, my father was Alan, and I had absolutely nothing to do with any of that information. You know, I didn't choose when I was born, where I was born, to the parents that I was born to. And think about that for yourselves. Think about if you were saying that sentence out loud, what you would say, the city that you were born in, the hospital that you were born in, the name of your parents, um, and the year and the date. And, and consider the fact that none of us had any control, any proactive input into that occurrence. The fact that we were born, where we were born, when we were born, and surrounded by the family that we were born into. That's an important, or quite a, it seems like a really overly simplistic idea, and it is a very simple idea, but the fact that we didn't have any control on it is a very, very quick way, I think, to uh, appreciate the importance of cultural empathy, because if none of us um, had any control over that, then the idea that we would judge others um, based on their life experiences and what their life experiences taught them to be to believe about the world um, and to uh, encourage them to behave in a certain way. Um, I think whenever we think about that, then we very quickly come to the realization that um, focusing on cultural difference, focusing on um, the way that other people act as being wrong and the way that we act as being right is really increasingly arbitrary. The media is in there as well. I'm not going to dwell on it now. I will talk about it a little bit later on, um, about the impact that the media has on how we understand the broader world around us. When we haven't been to parts of the world, if we haven't experienced parts of the world or met people from those parts of the world, why is it that we know quite a lot about them anyway? Um, and what does that impact in terms of our understandings of or our, um, our prejudices around um, people that we meet from those parts of the world? <clears throat> Okay, like I say, thank you for um, for your comments there, and certainly please do feel free um, to be commenting at any point if you have any questions, thoughts, or anything like that. And if you'd like to speak, I'd be delighted to hear from you as well. Okay, so I think we've kind of we've got a little bit of an idea of okay, culture generally as a topic. This is what we're looking at. These are the the factors that impact on culture. Here is a textbook definition of culture, if you like, just to round off our ideas that we were sharing. So culture is man-made, confirmed by others, conventionalized, and passed on for younger people or newcomers to learn. It provides people with a meaningful context in which to meet, to think about themselves, and to face the outer world. And that's from Trump and ours. Um, I think really that just kind of ties it up. It brings it in very specifically to um, to this definition, which we can reflect on as a singular kind of understanding of it. There are many different ways that you could phrase this, but it is man-made. It is, it is something that humans have created um, quite specifically for humans 
Um, and it's something that has been evident throughout history. Um, even whenever we go back to kind of pre-verbal times in humans, we see evidence in the elements of culture and living in tribes and hierarchies and things like that. Um, so it's an interesting one to consider. Um, it provides people with a meaningful context in which to meet, to think about themselves, and to face the outer world. Um, our culture impacts on you know thousands of micro decisions that we make subconsciously every day. Like I say, we are victims of our own culture. We cannot wash it off, um, and neither can anybody else. Again, that is an idea that if you think about it, that we're victims of our own culture and that we can't choose to change it, although, however, we can choose to reflect on the impact that it has on us. Um, I think that is quite a nice way to, to start your journey, if you like, towards, um, towards cultural empathy and embedding cultural empathy a little bit more into problem solving. Um, whenever you find yourself in a multicultural situation and there's perhaps a challenge with communicating an idea or understanding a behavior. I'll not spend too long on this slide. Um, I think you may well have seen an iceberg metaphor before, and this one follows the same trope um, that there are two elements to culture. You know, there's the element, the iceberg above the water, the elements of culture that we will see immediately. These are the things that whenever you step off the plane in Egypt, in Cairo, um, and you go into Cairo, the first things that hit you um, will be, the first thing that always hits me is the smell, um, the smells of the food, the smells of the street. Um, I associate, um, Spanish towns and, and cities, I think, with the smell of petrol, not because they all smell of petrol very much, but because there's a lot more um, kind of mopeds and scooters around. And kind of that's something that I quite like, um, that sense of, you know, walking through a little Spanish town and there being mopeds zooming around the place. You, it's, very, it's very present in France and Italy as well. Um, but those Im immediate kind of explicit elements of cultures, the elements that we're very aware of very quickly and we can perhaps get to terms with. So language... Uh, we can come to grips with language very quickly because we can identify, oh, people here are speaking Arabic rather than English. Uh, that doesn't mean that we can understand Arabic very quickly. Certainly that will take a long process, um, but it's something that we can identify and understand quickly. I was expecting this. Um, the behaviors, um, the way that people interact, um, the predominant race, if we go to a sub-Saharan African country versus if we go to uh, you know, Northern Scotland, um, that we'll see different predominant races and ethnicities and things like that. And we can understand those. We expected those kinds of things. It's what happens below the water that is much more profound. I think there are a lot more areas to consider. And I think in terms of really understanding uh, specific cultures, which is more an area of cultural intelligence rather than cultural awareness. Um, but it is useful to be aware of the fact that it takes so much longer to really get to grips with those areas. Um, so attitudes towards um, specific members of society as they may differ from the attitudes that you're familiar with in your own culture. Um, the lived experiences, the, the general lived experiences of people from a culture, um, not just in the, you know, what happened, the headline events, uh, but more the day-to-day, -day, the more mundane, routine lived experiences of people shape their culture and how they see the world and their, their values. Um, and, and yeah, how, how it's seen as being okay to act in public is a big one, I think, in the under the water section. That's something that you really have to learn, something that it would take time um, and consideration and, and research, if you like, uh, but not necessarily academic research. Cultural awareness and developing your cultural competence can often be done through research that um, that involves talking to people and having informal social conversations with people. It's one of the reasons it's one of my favorite competences to develop because there are human beings involved in it. It's not just um, hitting the books. Um, so there are areas of culture that are explicit, very clear to us very immediately, um, but let's not be forgetting the implicit areas of culture that if you perhaps haven't spent time away from your own familiar culture, um, you mightn't be as familiar with that process of having to adapt to how um, so many different areas can look differently. In different cultures. 
I'm going to use two metaphors quite quickly here. Um, and we're going to start to look at, I'm not going to mention bias too much, but this is really the first step in our journey in, in looking and reflecting on, looking at and reflecting on bias. Um, so the first point that I'm making here is that culture is like a fence. Um, fences perform two key tasks. The first task that a fence performs is to keep things together. If you have some animals in a field, if you have some sheep and cows in a field, and you want to keep those sheep and cows together, you can build a fence around, excuse me, you can build a fence around the field. That way you've solved your problem. You're keeping your, your cows and your sheep in the field and you're keeping them safe. If you want to separate your cows um, from your sheep and you want to have all your cows together and all your sheep together, you can employ the second task that a fence performs, which is to keep things apart. So if you build a fence down the middle of your field, you can have all your cows on one side and all your sheep on the other side. That's performing the two key tasks. In the new context, with the cows and sheep separated, those fences are keeping all of the sheep together, keeping the lived experiences of the sheep, and you'll see where I'm going with this, consistent. And then on the other side of the fence, you've got all of the cows kept together and their lived experience consistent. And you've also got the, both the sheep and the cows separated by the fence in the middle. Why am I talking about sheep and cows and fences? Well, let's scale up the field that we're talking about. Let's scale up the field with the cows and the sheep in it to the world that we live in. People are kept together and people are kept apart. Think of the fences that exist to do that. You've got um, geopolitical borders. Uh, you've got mountain ranges. You've got um, you know oceans and, and seas. And, and, and uh, I suppose geographical distance is the biggest fence that we have. Um, you know, growing up, um, my first 10 years of my life, I wasn't really exposed very much to Japanese culture. Why not? Well, the biggest fence or the biggest barrier to me interacting with Japanese culture was the fact that, you know, Japan and Northern Ireland are like 10,000 miles apart. And so that wasn't something that found itself into my everyday experience of life. Similarly, for people growing up in Japan, um, you know, they're 10,000 miles away, so they don't have a lot of interaction with perhaps um, areas of my culture as, as in the same way. Um, so culture is like a fence. Um, human beings are default kind of set, if you like, um, or we appear to be default set to, um, to preferring the familiar, to having a preference for what is familiar to them, what has been reinforced through their own lived experience as being right or good or positive. Um, and similarly, what has been reinforced as being negative, things that you shouldn't do, ways that you shouldn't behave, ideas that you shouldn't hold. Those are reinforced by our familiar surroundings. And it's a human kind of approach to understanding the world that they live in and who they are within it and how they should interact with it. A lot of, a lot of that kind of preference for familiarity, I suppose in an evolutionary sense, um, comes from a, a protectionist kind of a perspective. If you go back, you know, I suppose, what, 40,000 years and humans are living a more tribal existence in more nomadic tribes, um, you know, you did things that were routine. Um, you ate the same kinds of food, you hunted the same kind of animals, you lived a lot of the time in the same tribe, um, and you did that for safety. Um, if you ate the same foods, if you had a food yesterday and it didn't kill you yesterday, you didn't die from food poisoning, um, then you know that it's safe to eat it again. Similarly with the animals that you hunt and eat, and similarly actually with other tribes and other humans. If you can identify that, oh, this human is different to me, then you know that there may be danger because you don't know what you can expect from that tribe. Um, that makes sense 40,000 years ago. That same idea doesn't necessarily make sense now. We don't need it now. We live our lives in different ways and we're much more, um, I suppose, secure, um, certainly in this part of the world, in our day-to-day -day lives. However, that kind of 
resistance to the other, that resistance to things that are not familiar to us has kind of survived despite the fact that um, we have kind of evolved technologically, certainly um, beyond the need for that. And so it is kind of within everybody. Um, bias is certainly is something that every human being can uh, can reflect on because every human being does harbor biases. Um, you can make it really simple to make it easier to understand. But I mean, if you are a big fan of a sports fa sports team, um, then your bias will always be towards that sports team and against perhaps the other sport teams, the conflicting sports teams and their fans. You can have ideas around that. That's a real kind of um, childish kind of an example. Um, but we can scale that right up to beliefs that we have then perhaps about people coming from different parts of the world, uh, supporters of certain political parties, ideas like that, where we can see difference in human beings that we interact with. Um, and we still kind of have that preference for the familiar preference for what I am, for what my familiar group is, and this sense of suspicion related to the other, what that other group is that's different from us. That is there in human beings in, in 2021. And I suppose over the arc of time, we're getting better at that. Um, but it's certainly still there. So I suppose the key, I, the key idea around bias that I'd like to share with you is that everybody does possess bias. It's not about saying, oh, no, I'm not biased. Um, it's a very different thing to say um, I'm not uh, kind of racist and I'm not prejudiced and to say I'm not biased. You can say that you're not racist and that you're not prejudiced, but you can't say that you're not biased. Bias is not something that we should feel guilt relating to. Bias is something that we need to accept that sometimes whenever we consider things, our previous experiences impact on how we consider them. Um, and that can be just as true for people as it can be for ideas. So bias is there in all of us, it's there in me. I reflect on my own bias a lot. Um, and really the idea about it is to understand your own bias and to not allow your own bias to impact negatively on your interaction or on your expectation of um, individuals that you interact with. The other picture then of a dog, always nice to have a wee picture of a dog in your presentation. Um, really the point of that picture is the fact that the dog is wearing rose-tinted spectacles. Do you remember what I was saying about how the familiar is reinforced um, as we grow up through our devel developmental years by consistent life experiences that reinforce certain ideas um, as being true and good and other ideas as perhaps being negative and not so good? Um, we see consistencies within social groups. <clears throat> within communities, within people that are geographically closer to one another. And so if you go to certain parts of the world, you will see consistencies. Like I said, you could argue that there are 7.5 different individuals in this planet. And so to talk about um, you know, group kind of psychology doesn't really work because every member of that group will not be consistent. But what we're talking about are similarities shared platforms for understanding. So other people that grew up in the same part of the world as me will have been familiar with um, similar news stories, uh, similar focuses in conversation at different times, um, and similar ideas in a way that people from a very different part of the world to me will not. However, they will have been exposed to their own realities, their own important news stories and ideas. The idea here is that you could argue that people in, uh, let's say, people in Japan, for example, are consistently seeing the world, not identically seeing the world, but consistently seeing the world um, in a certain way based on their lived experience. So you could say they're all wearing rose-tinted spectacles. People in Nigeria are wearing green-tinted spectacles. People in Brazil are wearing yellow-tinted spectacles. The idea that the tint of their spectacles is consistent for every member of that group because they have a mutual platform to understand and to interact with the world. The point to take away from the tinted spectacles is that uh, none of us are seeing the world without a tint in our spectacles. Our brains are very advanced computers. Sometimes they're referred to that, uh, referred to in that way. And what we're talking about is whenever we're exposed to stimulus in the world, 
how do we understand that information? How do we understand the situation that we're in and decide how we're going to act? Well, it's all to do with the way that that computer in our head is programmed, and it is programmed by, it's programmed to learn, and it is programmed to learn based on consistency, things that we can believe, to, excuse me, to be true, to be accurate, um, and to be of benefit to us to bear in mind. None of us are seeing the world objectively. None of us are seeing the world without wearing a tint in our spectacles. We are all um, seeing the world through that lived experience and, and what that has uh, has encouraged us to to believe um, in our lifetime. Okay, great. Um, so yeah, Sonder, you may or may not have heard the word Sonder before. Um, the word Sonder essentially um, refers to the idea that we are all um, experiencing, you know, that everybody's life experience on this planet is unique and specific to themselves. Um, and I suppose that is the same for me. That's the same for everybody else on this planet. But I suppose I like the associated idea that we are all part of each other's story, even if we form a very small um, part of each other's story. And Sandra, I often think about the idea of Sandra whenever I find myself in an airport in a waiting room or something like that. And you're watching people, you know, you're people watching, people going by and or you're imagining their story, you're imagining um, the stresses or the point of their journey or, um, you know, what they're going through in their lives. And you're Obviously, you would presume that you're almost always wrong. Um, but I think the fact that we're all part of one another's experience is quite a unifying idea. And I think it really helps with kind of cultural empathy to, to look at that sort of slightly stylized, stylistic video. Um, just before we move on and, and go any further, if anybody has any comments or questions or anything that you'd like to raise, please do. Um, please do fire them in there. Like I say, I'll keep um, one of my eyes kind of half on the, the chat box, just in case there is anything coming in there as we go in throughout the session. Why the need for cultural awareness? Well, I hope that um, I've given you some food for thought already um, in that area. Certainly from a professional context in the world of work, um, cultural awareness is certainly a skill set that you want to be able to reflect on and, and understand from your own individual perspective and be able to speak about in that way. Um, but I suppose more practically in practical situations, um, what can we learn and how can we use our cultural awareness or improve cultural awareness to react to situations that we find ourselves in? Um, I suppose the point here that I'm trying to get at, the points that I'm trying to get at are, again, whenever we think about the, the rose-tinted spectacles and the fact that we all see the world through the filter of our own culture, um, the idea that our norm, our normality, our rules, our beliefs, our values that have been reinforced by our own life experience are not global rules, norms, uh, or beliefs. They are ours. They're specific to us and to our culture. Now, there will be overlap and there will be similarities in different cultural groups. Um, but whenever you see a lack of similarity or you see a big difference in that in a certain area with a certain norm or belief or behavior, that certainly will stand out to you as being different. And remember what, we, uh, what we've accepted already, that difference is something that human beings are astutely competent at identifying. We identify very well things that are different or outside of our own understanding. Um, there's kind of three images here. The first one I'd like to look at is the red and blue image with the black dots, which is an infogram, uh, I suppose, or an ideogram, I can't remember what the right term is for that, um, of queuing. Um, you may well be familiar with this. If you have traveled before, you may have seen, seen this in different parts of the world. Um, but queuing is something that in this part of the world, I think we feel quite strongly about. Um, and we feel that it should be a democratic process, as you can see in the blue um, square there, where you have uh, the reception desk or whatever it is that we're queuing for and a straight line where the person that comes last joins the back of the queue and waits. That is fair, that is equitable, and that is the right way to do things. 
On the right, what you can see is my representation of chaos. In that red square, you can see everybody congregated around, rushing and pushing and elbows out to get to the front um, of the queue. And I've certainly experienced that um, on my travels a few times. I remember, uh, I think I've, in Italy, I experienced it, um, but then I've, I've never experienced it quite like I experienced it in Hong Kong um, when I was there a few years ago um, with my partner. And if you pick two of the black dots towards the back of that little mass of black dots, that was me and my partner standing at the back of a uh, this type of queue for quite a long time. And one of the things that we realized after a while was that everybody else was making progress. Everybody else was, was getting there. Everybody else was moving forward, getting to the front and moving away. But we just really couldn't. We couldn't bring ourselves to kind of to be that involved in the queue. And uh, it just, it really kind of threw us. Um, and like I say, the point that I'd like to really underline isn't that one of those queues is right or better than the other. The point I'd like to underline is that both of those queues worked. Um, certainly the, the chaotic queue on the right-hand side might not seem very equitable or democratic, um, but one of the things that I noticed was that we were the only people that weren't actually able to um, progress in this queue just because of our own um, cultural restrictions, I suppose, and inhibitions in that way. Um, also, whilst living in Spain, I remember um, the first time that I went to post um, something in the in the post office, um, it was it was a box. I'd posted letters and postcards before, but I hadn't posted a big box. So I had to go into the post office one time. And I remember going into the post office and it was a big, big building. Um, I think it used to be uh, you know, used for something else, big kind of palatial building with pillars. And they had the post office staff at desks on either side of this building. And I thought, okay, um, I can, nobody's free at the minute. So I'll just go and stand behind this person and I'll be next. And I hadn't been in Spain for very long at this time. Um, and so I was kind of doing that thing that you do when you move to a new um, place where you, you, the language spoken is not your first language, where I was kind of practicing, okay, I need to send this back to Ireland. How much will it be for stamps to send this by airmail to Ireland? And how long will it take? I was practicing those kinds of things just to make sure that I was prepared for my interaction with the, the post office worker. Um, and I was kind of distracted by that. And Whenever the man that was in front of me being served left, and I thought it was my turn, um, I went to go up to the the post office worker and you know say my practice lines to get this package sent back home. And uh, all of a sudden, from nowhere, seemingly from nowhere, um, someone shouted out, "Hey, hey, 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 que no, eh?" And I sort of stopped, and I was very red faced, very embarrassed, and very kind of confused as to what had just happened. There was a very, I turned around, there was a very angry Spanish man. Um, kind of saying, so yo, I'm next, you know, you're not next. Super embarrassed. Um, a lot of people saw this and I kind of took a moment uh, to compose myself. I was like, oh, I'm very, very sorry. Yeah, of course, on you go. Um, and then I stuck back, stood back and tried to figure out what was happening. Uh, it wasn't too long before somebody else came into this post office building and they announced to the room, they announced to everybody else, quien es el último? which for anybody that maybe is a Spanish speaker on the call, I can see two names that I would suspect might be, um, is, uh, is how you would say in Spanish, who was the last person to come in? Who, you know, who was last? Who's, who's the last person in the line? Um, and somebody kind of raised their hand and they went and sat down. And then they knew that whenever that person went, that they were next. It's kind of like it works in a barbershop here. Um, I was familiar with that kind of queuing, but not in that kind of context. In a post office, the queuing that I was familiar with um, in my, from my own background was that kind of cashier number five, please, you know, where you stand in a queue and you wait to see who's free and it makes an announcement to tell you who's free. We didn't have that in Spain and it completely threw me. It completely threw me. Um, 
I did have one other experience of queuing um, whilst I lived in Spain. I moved to Alicante uh, before I came home for three months. Um, and before I was coming home, I sent a big box of clothes home because I couldn't afford to put those on my Ryanair flight. It was cheaper to post them. Um, when I went into a much smaller post office in Alicante, I thought, I know what I'm doing now. You know, I'll go in. And I did. I went in and sort of asked who was the last person to come in. And somebody told me. And I thought, brilliant. OK, I've cracked the code with post office queuing. And then I sat down. Um, and a couple of minutes passed. And I looked over. Um, and behind the person that was being served, um, there was a flip-flop and then a trainer and then a shoe. And then I looked at the people that were sitting beside me and noticed that they were one shoe down, if you like, that they weren't wearing one of their shoes. And they'd put their shoes there to key in their place. And this was a real head scratcher for me. Um, I just couldn't get my head around. I mean, I understood it more immediately. I could figure out, oh, okay, your shoes are queuing instead of, should I take my shoe off and put it at the back of the queue? But it really threw me. I was completely lost uh, to begin with. And to this day, I'm still a little bit confused um, as to what allowing your shoes to queue for you solves that asking who was the last person to come in hadn't solved. My point in all of this is that there are different ways to do things. In this case, there are different ways to queue. And my initial reaction to it was to judge the other ways as being wrong, the other ways as being ineffective, as being not the right way to do it, because it didn't fit in with you know, my understanding of how it should be done. But the point that I would reflect on is that all of the other ways of doing it were effective. They all worked. And you could argue that they were more effective. You could certainly confirm that they were as effective, but you could even argue that they were more effective in some ways. You know, the idea that in the post office, you ask who is the last person to come in, and then you can sit down and get your phone out or get your newspaper out. That's a much more comfortable way to queue than it is to stand, you know, with a heavy box in your hand at the back of a long queue. Um, so there are different ways to do things. Our norm is not the global norm. It's not the standard universal norm. But we should be open to other norms, not just as, you know, how can I understand this to survive in this new context? <laughs> Thank you, Luthia. Um, not just how can, bueno, igual uh, seguimos en castellano, no? No, we'll not do that. Luthia com uh, complimented my Spanish accent, which was a very nice thing to do. Um, Lucia, I'm not sure if you noticed um, that queuing that I was referring to, um, or if you've ever noticed those kinds of differences. Um, it is something which, like I say, we will always be very good at identifying what's different. I was excellent at identifying what was different there. But on reflection, um, you know, those different norms are equally valid and can even be argued to be better in some ways. You know, that's a debate that we don't need to have, but be open to other ideas. And that is the way that I think your understanding will improve um, yourself. There's other two, there's another two images here. The other two images reflect time and space, which are physical concepts, um, but they can also be culturally defined. Um, for example, with, with space, I'm, normally I would do an activity where I would get closer to somebody as they were speaking, and everybody in the room would notice as I was, whenever I was getting too close. Everybody in the room will start to cringe up, as well as the person that's speaking in front of the group um, will notice as I move closer and closer and closer that, oh, no, that's too close. How do they know what is too close? Again, it's very much culturally defined. It's not something that we consciously acknowledge. Um, but whenever somebody stands too close to us, whenever we're communicating with them, that is something that we will notice. That is something that we will be put off by. That is something we will find distracting. I'm speaking from experience. Um, and it is something which is culturally defined. In different parts of the world, it's very normal, perhaps, to see um, men, two adult men walking down the street, um, one with his arm around the other. Um, and the both of them are kind of speaking into the negative space that they've reduced down between the two of them. 
And you might find that a bit strange. You wouldn't normally see that, certainly, in this part of the world um, very often. Um, but you, it would be very standard, and you would see it in, in parts of the Middle East and in Sub-Saharan Africa as well, that would happen. Um, and you might, think it, you might think it's strange, but whenever you understand that actually that's often whenever those two men are quite close and they are talking about something that's perhaps personal or talking about something that's perhaps business-related, if they're walking down a street, they don't necessarily want to shout the, the content of that conversation all over the place. They don't want everybody to be able to hear and eavesdrop on what they're saying. So you create this sort of intimacy for your conversation by doing that. Um, I think that's a good idea. I think that makes a lot of sense. It's not something that we see here very often, if ever, um, but it is very normal in different parts of the world. The first thing that my mind would do or the first thing that my eyes would see would be difference there. Um, but personal space is one to be aware of. If you want to, perhaps in a professional context, not offend somebody or not stand too close to somebody, um, I think we do have a sense of that. I think we do have an innate sense of that, not just from our own um, you know, specific geopolitical culture or whatever you want to call that, but also from our own sense of professional culture, we understand that this is perhaps too close, this is perhaps too far away. And you can see notional ideas there of um, you know, intimate closeness being up to half a meter away, personal closeness with your friends or people that you're very familiar with or your family, um, about 1.2 meters. I'm not saying you should carry a, a, a measuring tape around with you to observe these, but social and professional, I would say three meters is, is perfectly acceptable, but it's often dictated to by the space that you're in. If you're in a small office and you both need to be um, um, kind of looking at the same screen um, so that you have the same um, access to the information you're discussing, then you're going to need to get much closer. That's a logical thing and a practical thing. Um, if you're in a big space, if you're in a big room and there's only two of you in the room, then you could stand maybe seven meters apart from one another. Um, I think it's always okay, particularly if you're the one who feels that their personal space is being inhibited on or is being... Uh, um, you know, not violated is the wrong word, but your rules as you see for how close you should stand to somebody when you're communicating. If you feel like they're not being observed, it's very, very acceptable um, to invite somebody to sit down or, uh, you know, to, oh, would you like to take a seat here or, you know, change the situation. But you don't necessarily have to say you're standing too close to me. Um, you can find a solution if there are two seats. Uh, why don't we take a seat? Why don't we sit down and then position the seats um, an appropriate distance apart? There are ways that we can do things without necessarily um, kind of tackling head on, if you like, the issue. Time. Um, I'm not sure that I can do this activity with you now. Um, I guess what I could do is if we're all there and we're all in the chat, um, I could pick a couple of names and ask you the question. Um, all I'm going to need from you as an answer is a time. Okay, so I'm going to try and do this. And if it doesn't work, then I will just talk you through the activity itself. So if we start with you, Stephen, Stephen Livingston. Stephen, if I told you that you had an exam tomorrow at 10 a.m. or at 10 o'clock, rather, what time would you arrive at the exam hall? So what time would you turn up to the, the venue for where you're going to do the exam if the exam started at 10 o'clock? And Stephen, I'll look out and see if you can answer me there. Um, Isabel, um, if you were... Um, catching a train. If you had to get a train that left at 10 o'clock tomorrow, what time would you arrive at the train station? Okay. Rose, if you were going to, um, if you were attending a party, it's, uh, it's my birthday uh, and we're going to have dinner um, and you should come around 10 o'clock. What time would you arrive at my house? If I've invited you um, to dinner for 10 o'clock at my house, what time would you arrive? And Matthew, um, 
similarly it's my birthday but we're not going to have dinner um we're just going to meet somewhere in town and we're going to meet at 10 o'clock what time would you arrive and i can see that i don't have any answers but i will check in on the chat in a second um like I say, time and punctuality and ideas relating to time can differ uh, with different cultures. There are obvious ones that people are perhaps aware of, um, you know, the importance of punctuality in a professional context in Germany. If you are not punctual, then, um, <clears throat> you know, it's very much disrespecting perhaps the interaction or in disrespecting the professional interaction um, that you're having. And so punctuality can be very important. And <laughs> thanks, Stephen. I've got one answer. So I've got Stephen, the question was, if you had an exam tomorrow at 10 o'clock, what time would you arrive at the exam hall? And you've said a quarter past nine in case the car breaks down, uh, you've got to find the venue. That's why you're allowing yourself time. Um, always very important to be early for an exam or an interview. Um, like I was just saying in the German context, but more broadly speaking, universally, it's important to be punctual in those kinds of events. And you'd sit and wait, side, sit and wait outside the venue. Always better to be early than late. I would totally agree with that. Rose, um, Rose, I asked you about, I think, the dinner. Um, yeah, but only because of dinner. For a party, we usually go a little late on purpose in the UK. I would totally agree with you on that one, Rose. And actually, that's kind of carrying me on to my next point. Um, oh, you live in Italy, Rose? Oh, fantastic. It's pretty usual to be acceptably late, even if there's dinner. That's just a cultural norm. I would totally agree with that. Yeah, that Mediterranean sort of later eating. Um, so what we've got there are two answers, um, and if any other answers come in, then I'll certainly reflect on those. However, the point I'm trying to make here is that the time that I gave everybody, the idea that I gave everybody was 10 o'clock, okay? Um, the, oh, maybe 10.20, so Matthew, I asked you about meeting us out in town, um, but there was no dinner involved at 10. So the idea that I gave you all, um, Rose and Stephen and Matthew, was 10. But already what I've got is 1915, 110, and 11020. 1020. Why do I have three different times whenever it was the same time that I was um, asking you to attend an event? I think the, the reasons are probably pretty obvious to everybody on this call already. I don't need to go through them, although thank you for, um, for justifying your responses there. Um, there are different ideas that we will all have and they will be culturally reinforced again through our lived experiences as to what is acceptable. Um, whenever it's a social thing, so whenever it's dinner or whenever it is you know, meeting for drinks in an evening, it's quite unusual, I think, certainly for me and my culture to arrive bang on time. I think with dinner, you maybe do arrive bang on time because somebody's gone to the effort to cook you dinner and prepare you food and you don't want it to get cold and you don't want that person to be stressed. With an exam or with a train or a bus that you're going to catch, there's no point in being late. You know, being late is going to cause you stress. You're going to either miss your train or your bus, or you're going to really put yourself in a bad headspace if you arrive late for an exam, even if they do let you in. You've kind of unfairly disadvantaged yourself. I think we would all agree with the different times that we've got there, a 9.15, a 10, and a 10.20 for those different ideas. But like I say, there are these kind of inherent ideas in different cultures and they can look very different. I have spent a lot of my time waiting on Spanish people in my life. And I am not trying to be prejudiced or to stereotype about Spanish people. It's just an observation. And it's probably as much my fault as it is theirs for taking times literally. But I remember um, at first, whenever I first moved to Spain, I lived in Santander for nine months. Um, and I was very lucky. I made friends there. And I remember meeting Luis, uh, one of my, the first friends that I met, uh, I'd met. Um, and he said, oh, yeah, well, look, let's, let's go for coffee tomorrow. I'll meet you at, uh, I'll meet you at 10 o'clock, just outside the town hall. So I'm waiting there. I'm outside the town hall at 10 o'clock. 
Um, and I think, good, at least I'm here, at least I'm on time. Um, Luis isn't here yet, but I wouldn't have wanted him to be waiting on me. Um, and then 10 minutes go by, I think, no, it's fine. You know, it's fine. I'm, I'm aware of Spanish culture. I know that perhaps, you know, it's a little bit fluid here. Uh, 10.20 went by, 10.30 went by. And I think, um, you know, I, I text him, but this is maybe 13 years ago now. So um, whenever I text him, um, you didn't get like red receipts and things back then and like you do on WhatsApp now. So you couldn't tell whether somebody read your text message. You know, I'm starting to think, is everything okay? Is there something wrong with Luis? And then Luis would arrive at 10.40. Um, and the issue for me wasn't just that he arrived at 10.40, but it's that whenever he arrived, I said, <laughs> it's that whenever he arrived, I said, uh, you know, I said, oh, hi, Luis. And I was quite worried about him. And he was very relaxed. And he was kind of, oh, hey, Thomas, how you doing? Will we go and get a coffee? Will we go and have something to eat? Um, and I sort of thought, yeah, well, absolutely. We'll go for a coffee and go get something to eat. But are we not skipping a step here? Have we not missed something? You haven't addressed the fact that you're 40 minutes late um, to meet me for a coffee. And, you know, I'm I'm waiting for you to tell me that your car broke down or there was an issue with the bus or that your cat died. Or, you know, I'm looking for some kind of qualifying justification for being 40 minutes late. Um, and I'm not saying... I'm not generalizing in that way. I'm not saying that Spanish people are always late, but it was certainly something that I then developed into my understanding of, you know, I was never then surprised whenever we perhaps didn't meet at the exact time that we said we'd meet at, because we said we'd meet at our, uh, around a time rather than a specific time. And I know for a fact that that would have been different had I spent my um, time in a different country. Um, it's interesting. Um, but like I say, ideas around personal space and time and norms and what is the right way to do something, the best way to do something will be informed by your surroundings whenever you're developing, whenever you're growing up and those kinds of ideas. Um, and they will look different in different parts of the world where different values are predominant. Okay. I hope that's all clear enough. Again, whenever I can't see all of your faces and I can't kind of see you either nodding or falling asleep or whatever it is you might be doing in the classroom, um, then it's difficult for me to get a sense of it. So like I say, if there are any questions, um, please do uh, let me know. Please do feel free to type them in the chat. I would love to speak to you um, as much as we possibly can in this medium. And Lucia, I'd love to talk to you about the fact that you're from Santander. I'm sure we'd have um, a lot to talk about. Um, Generalizations and stereotypes. Okay, so just to, to kind of review, um, what we've looked at so far, ideas around culture, what we believe culture is, how do we define culture, how do we think about culture, and the impact that culture has on human beings. Also that other very important idea that we should bear in mind, that human beings are kind of subconsciously very, very good at identifying difference, at, at identifying behaviors, language, um, ideas that conflict with their own ideas. Um, and like I say, that's something that we've developed as an evolutionary trait. It's been a benefit to us um, as we've evolved over the past, you know, 100,000 years, what, whatever you want to put on that. But it's not necessarily beneficial now, but we still definitely do it. Something to bear in mind because it's universally true. Um, and we've considered a little bit about how those fixed ideas that we have about what we believe to be true, right, or the best way to the best way to interact with the world around us, behave, the values that we should hold, um, are specific to us and to our own surroundings and to our own dominant culture that we live in or that we grow up in or that we're exposed to. And similarly, they are different um, but consistent in other groups in different parts of the world. So if we move on then to um, to consider other ideas that are, I suppose, associated with bias. Associated with bias is really, uh, you can look at bias in a number of different ways, but here I suppose what we're talking about is bias is that information that encourages us to believe that we know something about a group um, or about a person, about an individual, based on our previous knowledge. 
And we can know something about a person based on previous knowledge. But very, very often, whenever we're basing that um, that judgment, that understanding um, on their behavior and the way that they're interacting, or or something about that person on a small amount of lang uh, small amount of information based on a small amount of interactions with a limited number of people, um, that we can't necessarily rely on that to be true and accurate in our belief about what might be true about this person. We can hold it on standby, if you like, and see if it's reinforced by that person, but we don't do that as human beings. We kind of like to, for efficiency's sake and to be quicker, we like to, um, to consider what you know to consider what we know as being true or accurate to begin with. So very quickly, I don't think we need to spend a lot of time on defining them. I think you'll probably all know what a generalization is and what a stereotype is. But a generalization is an idea. It's the categorization of the predominant tendencies in a cultural group, the tendency of a majority of people in the group to hold certain values and beliefs, excuse me, and to engage in certain patterns of behavior. So it's an idea about a group. Um, a stereotype then is the application of that idea, the application of the generalization to everybody within, um, every individual rather, within a cultural group or to generalize from experience with only a few people from the group. Stereotypes can be infused with emotion and that's something to really bear in mind. Um, that's kind of really where uh, unconscious bias, subconscious biases that aren't acknowledged can grow and can start to um, perhaps uh, foster negative relationships um, with colleagues perhaps that you work with or with people that you know that you interact with regularly. Um, and that's something that really we need, to, we need to be aware of, the fact that that happens and where that might be happening in our own experiences, although we are seeing generationally improvements in these areas and the acceptance of it. Very simply, stereotypes are unrealistic. If you go to the south of England, you're not likely to walk into a pub. Obviously, you're not likely to walk into one these days anyway, but generally speaking, um, whenever we're allowed to go back to normality, um, you're not likely to walk into a pub and see a gentleman that looks like the man on the left there. Also, on the right-hand side, you know, coming to this part of the world, you're not likely to see people running around dressed like this as the, uh, the heavy Irish stereotype um, would dictate. Um, you might see that. Um, perhaps on St. Patrick's Day, whenever people are in a celebrating mood and things like that, and that's the idea, you know, that you kind of dress up in green and celebrate in that kind of a way. But these stereotypes of, you know, a stereotypical English person or a stereotypical idea of an Irish leprechaun kind of a character are unrealistic, aren't they? They don't tell you a lot about the individual people that live in that part of the world. But that's essentially what expanding um, a small amount of information or a small amount of set facts um, can look like and, and, and can, you know, whenever we see it looking like that, we know that we don't relate to it in any way. The real issue with generalization and stereotypes is that it leads to prejudice. Prejudice is the idea that you know something about a person before you've interacted with them based on your existing knowledge. Now, you can't know anything about that individual. Um, you know, you can assume, I guess, the language that that person might speak. You can take practical ideas and think, okay, well, this person you know, looks Spanish, they're wearing a Spanish football top and they're gonna come and speak to me, they might speak Spanish. Technically, that's prejudice, <laughs> do you know what I mean? Because I don't know that they are. I'm not necessarily right or true, um, you know, and they could be from, from anywhere. Um, that's a simple one, that's an easy one. That's one that isn't necessarily the reason why we need to really be aware of prejudice. Um, just the idea that you can judge somebody based on your previous experience of people that you deem to be similar to those people. I think everybody in this call was already aware before this call that that is not useful. Those judgments that we place, whether they're conscious or subconscious, we need to be aware of them. And we need to be, um, I suppose, constantly scrutinizing our own opinions in that way and, and how we do that. 
the motivation for us doing it isn't necessarily negative. So like I say, we need to accept that we have bias um, within all of ourselves and that we do have individual bias, which is specific to ourselves. We don't need to run away from that or be afraid of it, but we do need to um, be aware of the potential impact of believing, you know, believing our own um, biases or allowing those to impact on um, our interactions with people that we're doing research with, people that we're studying with, people that we're working with, people that we interact with in this world. Um, the judgments that we make are based on our own um, tinted spectacles, if you know what I mean. So, you know, they're always based on our perspective, which isn't necessarily um, perfect. When we make assumptions, when we make judgments, we rarely um, achieve a better understanding or an improved understanding of the other person, the other, whatever that might be. Um, so you can see here a newspaper article, I think, taken from The Observer a number of years ago. And you've got <clears throat> two women there dressed very differently um, with the woman on the left looking at the woman on the right thinking, everything covered but her eyes, what a cruel male-dominated culture. And the woman on the right similarly thinking, nothing covered but her eyes, what a cruel male-dominated culture. I don't have a lot of time to spend on this picture necessarily, but I think we can just hammer home um, the fact that whilst both of those women are making judgments based on their own lived experience and their own understanding and their own knowledge, neither of those judgments allow those women to understand more about one another. And so, in my opinion, they're not very useful judgments to make. In fact, they're, they're kind of the opposite of useful. They're harmful judgments to make um, because you're jumping to a conclusion without knowledge of the individual, and that is prejudice. I mentioned earlier that I would talk about media a little bit, and I think it's it's a useful one in 2021 to be considering. Um, the media has really evolved so much in the past 20 years. If you um, if you pass a if you're in a train station or an airport, or you pass a bus stop, or you're in the library and you're in you know Hope Cafe, um, if you look at people in all of these situations um, in 2021. Um, like I say, whenever we go back to normality, the majority of these people we will be engaging in one activity and it will look very much like the picture on the left there, won't it? We'll all be staring at our screens. We're all slaves to our screens, I suppose, in one way or another these days, more so these days than perhaps ever before. And we consume media there. That is where we consume, you know, that's where we network with our friends. That's where we keep up with our family. That's where we uh, find out what's going on in the world um, today versus yesterday. That's where we find out what the key talking points are globally. Um, that is where we interact with the world perhaps more than anywhere else. Um, now, obviously, I have, I have friends that have kind of sworn off technology and they, you know, they don't have social media and they have a basic phone and things like that. But I think the predominant tendency is certainly that that is, uh, that's the way that we act in society. The reason I think it's so important in terms of cultural awareness is whenever we're developing our understanding of different parts of the world, whenever we're developing that understanding of how, you know, perhaps this culture is different to our culture or this culture is different to that other culture, um, a lot of the information that we're consuming or a lot of the information that we're presented with about other cultures, I suppose, is presented to us by uh, news outlets and media agencies that are telling us stories about different parts of the world. Telling us stories is uh, a deliberate way of putting that, I think. Um, for example, I've never been to North Korea. I've never met anybody from North Korea. I've never even been really very close to North Korea. I was in Hong Kong, um, but not all that close. However, I feel like I know quite a lot about North Korea. Why? Because the media spotlights North Korea. The media has talked about North Korea quite a bit over the past um, kind of five to 10 years. With all of the knowledge that I have um, from the media about North Korea, 
what do I then know about individual people from North Korea? What do I know that is going to help me the first time that I meet somebody from North Korea to interact with them more effectively? Well, really very little, unless I want to talk to them about you know, the nature of the news articles that I've read. Um, and I suppose it's that, it's that sense that we do gain an understanding of the world through media outlets, because we can do that. Um, however, the way that the media works, I suppose, I'm sure you're all very familiar with the fact that, um, you know, there are algorithms online now and that, um, you know, do you ever have that experience of your shopping online, you're looking at a pair of blue trainers, for example, and then you go back onto another website or a social media platform, and then immediately you see those blue trainers that you were looking at in a different website context because you're being targeted advertising. Websites um, like that and media outlets increasingly um, make a lot of money through their advertising, through that targeted advertising that happens for all of us as individuals. And so as a reaction to that, you'll often find sensationalist headlines. You'll find headlines that will encourage people to click on the headline rather than objective and balanced headlines that reflect what really happened. What we see increasingly are headlines which um, seek to kind of expand on and blow up and sensationalize what happened in such a way that it sounds like a headline that you want to click on because the more clicks, the more advertising revenue, the more money. That's something I think we need to be aware of, particularly whenever we're considering what we are reading online as being true and accurate. Now, I'm sure that in your generation, you're very aware of fake news, of deep fakes, where you know you can take a video of somebody and make it sound like they are saying something um, completely different to what they are saying. But increasingly, we need to be aware of that, especially whenever we're allowing that to inform our narrative around what life is like in a certain part of the world, what people in a certain part of the world believe, and how people interact um, in that kind of a way. Think about what makes a headline, and often what will make a headline on certain on certain news outlets um, is you know the headline that gets the most clicks rather than the headline that most accurately reports what is happening. There's a real danger in this as well. I think um, I suppose an example of it um, would be that in in the United States, obviously there are there have been difficulties around gun control in the past um, kind of ten years. Um, and one of the interesting things about it, I suppose, as much as it, it's been very very tragic and there have been a lot of really abhorrent kind of attacks. Um, is the way that it is reported, and certainly the way that it is reported in the immediate aftermath of the event happening whenever it's being you know, mass covered by lots of different media. If the individual that perhaps went into the public space or the school building or the cinema or the concert or whatever it is, um, and that you know, started to, to shoot people and to murder people, if the individual looks like me, Often you will see a certain kind of language in some of the media outlets reporting of it. You might see compensating language. You'll see language relating to mental health issues, you know, um, kind of social difficulties, you know, interacting with, um, with others. You'll also see, you know, increased violence in video games and movies impacting on um, consciousness and things like that. Um, if the person doesn't look like me, if the person looks like they come um, from, I suppose, where about a quarter of the world's population come from, anywhere from kind of India throughout the Middle East into Northern Africa, um, then often you will see very different language being used in the immediate media reporting of um, the atrocity or whatever it was um, that happens. You know, you'll often see terror very quickly, the word terror, terrorism, um, attack, and that kind of thing. You also might see um, Islam or the word Muslim, you might see that brought into it um, as well. Right? Islam and Muslim, those two words refer to a religion in the same way as Christianity and Hinduism and Judaism and, and Catholicism and all of those different religions. Those words don't really have any place in the, that initial reporting of, for example, um, the, uh, the atrocity that's happened. 
However, you will see it, and it's certainly something that is there, and there is no kind of control over, um, particularly whenever you know religion had nothing to do with it. You know, it was it was kind of a disturbed individual that was moved to um, to uh, to act in the way that they did. So that's dangerous. Whenever the media has control over not just informing us of what happened, but perhaps how we should feel about what happened, what the implications should be, and I think the more that we are aware of how the media works um, in that way, I think the more we can be conscious of it and not allow it to um, to dilute too much kind of our understanding of things from a more accurate perspective. You know, if we have friends from that part of the world, or if we have access to um, more academically rigorous, if you like, information or insights into those kinds of things, which often come later um, and that kind of thing. Yeah, thank you, Matthew. Islamic terror attacks get 400% more coverage than non-Islamic related attacks. That's the thing. I mean, you can find statistics as well um, that kind of reinforce what we're talking about here um, in terms of the the media spotlight that certain kind of crimes get over equivalent crimes um, that were committed in different contexts. Really important. And I think you all know this. I don't want to you know ram it home too much. Oh, Brilliant, Matthew. I'd love to talk to you about that, um, actually. Or if there's anything you'd like to maybe contribute, if you want to speak, I'd, I'd love to hear from you. Please do um, feel free to do so. I think I'll see a request pending if you if you put one in there. I think we just need to be aware of the impact that the media can have on our perspectives or our understandings or our biases then that would develop um, around other cultures, other parts of the world, and, and, and things like that, particularly whenever there's such a focus on, on revenue generation through advertising and that sensationalist headline kind of an idea. I hope that's clear. I think that's clear. If there's anything that anybody would like to, to, to further ask or, or contribute, please do feel free to. Okay. I'm going to move on now to communication. So we'll move on a little bit from um, the theoretical ideas around culture and our own perspectives versus the perspectives of others and how we shouldn't allow those the differences in those um, to to inhibit us communicating effectively, engaging effectively, and interacting with one another effectively. Because again, like I say, there is a real professional need. This is not something that I'm saying um, or that I'm sharing with you solely because we want to create a better world to live in, although I hope that we all do. Um, this is a tangible skill set that is of benefit, I think, increasingly in the multinational workforce um, or even working for local companies that have international clients. You know, All of this can be useful if you're considering things like this when you're communicating. And we're going to focus really heavily now on um, the mechanics of communication and some of those areas as well. Normally I would take time in a session like this to look at culture shock. Culture shock is the experience that we, um, the, the human experience, the lived experience if you like, of moving from a familiar culture to an unfamiliar culture for a significant amount of time or for a relevant amount of time. Um, and it's all of the things that we've mentioned already. Do you remember the iceberg? It's kind of the, the food and the routines and the, the language that's spoken and our inability, if you like, to interact with that. Um, the norms, the unwritten rules, the etiquette, um, all of those ideas. Whenever we find ourselves in a, an environment where all of those ideas are slightly different, to what we're familiar with. We're kind of overwhelmed by the difference. Remember what we talked about how humans are so um, astute at pointing out and identifying difference. We often find ourselves as overwhelmed by that. And so often whenever we arrive in a new place, we find it particularly difficult in the first, um, you know, the first period of time. Maybe if we're there for six months, for the first couple of months, we might be a little bit overwhelmed by having to get to grips with all of these differences and trying to understand um, you know, how we can assimilate, how we can not be thrown by them, how we, we can not be confused all the time. 
and how we can not have a sore head, if you like, because that's one of the things, um, certainly whenever I first moved to Spain, I, I know that I developed headaches. Um, and I, I later looked it up. It is a, it's a scientific thing. It's, it's, it's whenever you're all of a sudden overusing a part of your brain um, to, to try and constantly understand um, a language in an immersive way that you haven't had to previously. I've always uh, kind of been able before that to be in a classroom environment or to be in a safer environment and not on my own. Oshin. I'm just going to take a minute to, to look at your point before we move on to conversation. Is there a concern in overcompensating for potential bias in reporting, media, et cetera, where individuals committing acts of violence publicize their own attributes or group membership in relation to crimes, particularly where non-participants may wish to distance the perpetrator from their own identity? So, okay, so you mean kind of under-reporting? I've been talking about sensationalism and kind of overselling a story to try like clickbait sort of thing. But you're talking about, you know, it's important to um, to report things accurately and to not um, kind of play down where there has been um, kind of different factors like that. I think that's what your question um, maybe is pointing at. Yeah, I think really what we're looking for is is accuracy, isn't it? And, it, and it's... Um, it's lack of bias in the reporting that we consume. And obviously there are media outlets that do kind of try to subscribe to that more and certainly advertise themselves as subscribing to that more. Um, I think really, if we, can, if we can stop the generalization that happens, which is very difficult to do because it's, it's again a human trait, whenever um, you, know, you have a, a news story that, that, uh, that blames, if you like, either a certain person or blames a culture that they are a part of, um, I think what we're getting into is is very quickly facilitating uh, prejudice against um, you know all members of that culture in a way which is which is not quite appropriate, which is certainly not useful um, because it doesn't apply to every individual in the same way. Um, I'm just rereading your question just in case I've I've kind of missed any of the points of it. And again, if you would like to speak, um, you're more than welcome to to speak with me and, and then to clarify in that way. Um, as a follow-up, is there a way to report something accurately but without feeling in falling, sorry, into a potential clickbait title premise, etc.? I suppose it's the one versus the other. Do you know, I think if we can accept that we live in a world where accurate reporting is kind of always having to be balanced in a media context with um, kind of the perceived goal of it, so the the attention that, that, that it wants to attract, there's no point in accurately reporting something and two people reading it as far as a media outlet is is concerned because they have to um, you know, they have to keep themselves going, i.e. X group attack on location versus attack on location and so forth. Yeah, I think it's really the point that I was trying to point to is the lack of balance um, that is seen sometimes and the, and the freedom with which um, we often see um, kind of generalizations used and prejudices exposed in, in headlines. And I think as well, if you consider the medium, you know, that the medium is your iPhone or your, your smartphone or whatever, um, the way that people interact with their smartphones. And I think everybody in this call will be able to relate to this in some way um, that often you click on the headline but you don't necessarily read the whole article unless the article is written in a way that attracts you or that kind of keeps your attention. Um, you know, we quite often, the scrolling culture needs to keep scrolling. So the danger, I suppose, is in the extremist or the essentialist headline or the um, sensationalist headline being kind of all that we take away from it. We don't then read the article that comes after it and think, oh, well, that headline was a little bit over the top, wasn't it? Or it didn't quite portray this accurately. Um, 
I'd love to talk to you actually um, outside of this session about this. And, and the same with all of you. I'm going to leave my, my contact details at the end. And like I say, with this not being a face-to-face -face session, um, I'd love to either look at having a face-to-face -face session at a later date or certainly following up with any of you on an individual level. Um, but yeah, I think we, we certainly don't hold our media accountable um, for that kind of activity. Um, and obviously the internet and the online environment is something that it's, it's always been difficult to police um, outside of kind of extreme things that we all agree are wrong. It's, it's just such an open, it's an open field and that should be such a positive thing. Um, but it's important to be wary of, I think, um, how the media that we consume shapes our understanding of what actually happened um, because often we will see such a bias in the way that it's reported. Um, and it's, it's important to try and stay aware of that, but very difficult, um, I would say as well. Not sure that I fully answered your questions there, Oshin, but like I say, I would be more than happy to, to take the conversation forward with you. And if anybody does want to speak, please do um, feel free to, to do so. Okay. Um, we have, I believe, half an hour left, 30 minutes left, okay, which I think is enough time. Um, and like I say, what I'd like to follow up on now is really communication. Um, and I'm going to take it really down and take it to a basic level uh, and then hopefully build it up a little bit so that we have something to, to take away from today's session. Um, happy to answer this question. Um, yeah, I would agree, Oshin. And like I say, I'll, I'll leave my email address on at the end there if you'd, if you'd like to follow up on, on any of the points. Um, this is a question I would normally ask, obviously, whenever I'm face-to-face -face with people in a room and they could just shout out their answers. What are some of the common issues that we're facing or that you may encounter professionally, particularly with a focus on communication? Now, it might not be something that you feel like you have an answer for. Or if we have some Spanish speakers on the call, you might think, well, my communication difficulties are sometimes people in, uh, in, this, part of, in this part of Ireland speak very quickly with a very strong accent and actually outside of the accent issues. I don't really have a big difficulty in communicating ideas with people. It's really just understanding how quickly they're speaking. And I had that issue in Spain as well, that people spoke very quickly. Um, but if there are kind of cultural barriers to communication, do feel free to share them. But again, in this medium, I appreciate that it's quite a complex question perhaps to be putting an answer to in the chat. What I'd like to invite you to do now is, um, this is a very quick activity, it won't take you very long, but if you have a pen, you have a piece of paper, um, if you can just draw that three by three grid on it for me. Um, just draw that grid um, with three by three squares, draw a big box, and then do the lines in between like an XEOZ sort of a, a setup. And what I'm going to do once you have that drawn is I'm going to give you four instructions. Yeah. I'll just let everybody draw that group there whilst I read. Uh... Yeah, that's a good question, Matthew. Just while you're drawing that, I'm going to answer that question. Um, You've mentioned um, you're curious to see if if I see rather all grouping or stereotyping as pure negative. If you try to understand every facet of an every facet rather of a new culture, it can get overwhelming quickly. For example, yeah, um, there is more to the story. I think with stereotyping, stereotyping often grows out of facts. Do you know what I mean? It grows out of something that is true, something that is true of a culture. Um, Let's look at Spain, for example, very quickly. Uh, some people um, are very uh, kind of on board with Mediterranean culture with a, a positive and kind of a, a healthy diet, you know, lots of fish and fruit grown locally and nearby. It's a really positive thing. And then the idea of siesta, 
um, for example. So the idea of um, sleeping in the middle part of the day, which doesn't actually happen across all of Spain and, and increasingly happens kind of differently in different parts. But you will absolutely see businesses that open in different schedules to accommodate, um, you know, that longer lunch break um, in Spain. Um, and you know, I've seen I've seen that evolve in friends. I've seen that understanding of, oh, in Spain they have a really good work-life balance, don't they? That that's a generalization. Um, not everybody in Spain has a good work-life balance, um, and certainly not everybody in Spain has the same work-life balance. But you could, I suppose, look at that idea and say, oh, that balances out your day very well. It's forgetting the fact that the siesta was really brought in because whenever people were um, working outside a lot of the time that at certain times of the year, the heat, um, the midday sun, if you like, um, was simply too warm to be to be outside in. So it wasn't practical to to work out in the midday sun or you would get sunstroke or you would really struggle to work. Um, but we'll put that to one side because I'm sure you've probably heard this yourself. You've heard the old person say, oh, yeah, Spanish people, they have a siesta. That's a brilliant thing. That's I wish we could do that. That's a good work-life balance. Um the reason that the stereotype isn't helpful is, I guess, that if you agree that you can say that about a group of people, if you agree that you can say anything about a whole group of people and it will be true for every member of that um, group, then it won't be true. Um, and if you then you know, apply the stereotype and then you infuse the stereotype with emotion, so you infuse the stereotype that, oh yeah, every Spanish person has a good life, work-life balance, Accepting that to be true means that you accept the opposite to be kind of true as well. You might accept if it's infused with emotion, oh, well, Spanish people are quite lazy, aren't they? They don't have the same work-life balance that we have that's more focused on work. And all of a sudden you find yourself making statements that just aren't true and that can't be true of all Spanish people. Sure, there are lazy Spanish people, there are lazy Irish people, there are lazy American people. Um, there are different kind of things like that all over the world. Um, it's just obviously with stereotyping, the point is that you can't believe that one thing will be true of all members of a group. However, what you've asked me about is, is it always negative? One thing that I will admit to is that stereotypes can really help you to kind of accelerate, particularly if you're living in country whenever I'm in Spain. One of the things that I learned was internal Spanish stereotypes. You know, how people from the south of Spain maybe view people from the north of Spain or how people from a certain region are viewed in a certain way. And it was often using humor and it was often using heavy stereotype. Now, if I was able to take... Um, the the reason or the 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 idea that drove that kind of stereotype initially um and separate that out then actually that would teach me a little bit of, of something culturally about people in that part of the world um and actually it would help me um the thing is as long as i know that look stereotyping isn't going to help me and generalizing isn't going to help me in prejudice just obviously that is wrong um, but whenever you're trying to develop your cultural intelligence from a specific culture, it's really useful to start with the stereotypes. What are the commonly held perceptions about people in this part of the world and why? Um, not to, to take them on yourself, but to interact with them. All ideas need to be, uh, you need to be able to interact with all ideas. You can't just say, no, I'm not interacting with that idea because that's a stereotype and that's not accurate. Um, but it's if you interact, it's how you interact with it. It's how you develop your approach to understanding the ideas and things. Okay. Hopefully, with all that rambling, um, we've all been able to draw a three by three grid. Like I say, I'm going to give you all now a quick activity. I'm going to give you four instructions. It will be in English, so hopefully everybody can understand. And I'll try and speak relatively slowly and clearly. I'll give you each instruction twice only, and I want you to act whenever you hear the instruction. I'm guessing that you're all ready, but I won't wait for you all to type yes in the chat. Okay, so instruction number one. Draw a triangle in the top right-hand corner. Draw a triangle in the top right-hand corner. Instruction number two. Draw a circle beside the triangle. 
draw a circle beside the triangle. Instruction number three, draw a rectangle opposite the triangle. Draw a rectangle opposite the triangle. And question number, or instruction number four rather, draw a star in the square which is furthest away from the triangle. Draw a star in the square which is furthest away from the triangle. Okay, that's your four instructions. You've been given them all twice, as I said I would, and you've been given them all in English. Now, I'd like you to put your pen down and I'd like you to look at what you have in front of you. And if anybody has drawn what I can show you in the next slide, I would like you to type yes into the chat or feel free to type no into the chat if you did not draw what is on the next slide. That is what is on the next slide. So I said, draw a triangle in the top right-hand corner. Draw a circle beside the triangle. Draw a rectangle opposite the triangle. So the triangle is top right. What's the opposite of top, bottom? The opposite of right, left, so bottom left. And draw a star in the square, which is furthest away from the triangle. So um, the rectangle is kind of one, two squares away from the triangle. The star is one, two, three squares away from the triangle. Now, I don't see any yeses or noes, but what I would assume has happened is perhaps you have not been able to draw what is on the on the board there. Um, and the reason that I'm assuming that is because with the thousands of people that I've done this brief activity with um, over the years, very well, I have two people that have got it right. And I think they got it right by accident. <laughs> well done, Stephen, for trying anyway. The idea for me was that nobody got this right, that nobody did this, but that you can now see why my instructions were appropriate. You know, because I, I said top right beside the triangle, bottom left. Okay, well, I can see that now. Yeah, I can see where he was coming from. What do you think the point I'm trying to make here is? Well, there's a couple of points. The first point is, whose fault is it? If everybody on this call has drawn that wrongly, whose fault is it that everybody drew it wrongly? You know, if my intention is that everybody draws this and nobody draws it, it's my fault. I am the communicator. It is my job and my role as the communicator to focus on the people that I'm communicating with, not to focus on myself. Because if I focus on myself, then you know, I'll give instructions that I'm very happy with, but I don't really care about you know, what happens thereafter. If you really want to communicate successfully, you've got to communicate, or you've got to focus on the people that you're communicating with. Okay, And it also demonstrates this activity, how simple instructions given in an understandable way. Um, you know, these are key stages excuse me, one instruction. So these are instructions that, you know, primary school children should have no problem with. But it's how instructions can be given ineffectively. Do you know, there are small changes I could have used, I could have made to the language that I used in order to make this a much more successful activity. If I'd said draw a triangle in the top, in the square that's in the top right-hand corner, draw a circle in the top middle square, draw a rectangle in the bottom left square, draw a star in the bottom middle square, you probably all have got it right or most of you would definitely have got it right anyway. Um, and that's the point I'm trying to get to. Whenever you're communicating with somebody, focus on the person that you're communicating with and focus on how, whatever it is, the instruction, the idea that you're sharing, the social interaction that you're having with them is accessible for them. Um, and the more that you focus on that, particularly whenever you're communicating with somebody that isn't from the same part of the world as you, or that you don't have a mutual platform for understanding through that shared lived experience of being from similar cultural backgrounds, 
Um, you've really got to be leaning into this side of things. And in a professional context, I promise you this will be useful to you. Um, if you are from this part of the world, like I say as well, don't forget that you speak too quickly. So whenever you're giving instructions, that's also a benefit if you're giving instructions to people that are not English uh, native speakers as well. Um, so like I say, very important when you're giving instruction, when you're giving verbal instruction, to consider and to focus on the people that you're communicating with. I'll not go into the reasons um, or the logic behind that. Essentially, communication, whenever we see communication between one person and another, we often see it as a one-two-step process. I speak, they speak, I speak, they speak, I reply, they speak, I reply, they speak, that kind of a thing. But it's not obviously a two-step process. It's maybe a six or a seven or an eight-step process, depending on which academic you're more of a fan of. Um, but, you know, it's very much... A seven, what those seven steps might look like. I have an idea in my head. I want you to draw the triangle in the top right-hand corner. I then have to use my lived experience of language and things like that to then formulate that idea um, in my head. Okay, I need to create language and decide on how I'm going to deliver that. I then, step three, have to mechanically deliver it using my vocal cords and my teeth and my tongue to form the language at a, at a volume which is appropriate for you to hear it. And then step four, that sound goes out into the ether. In this case, it goes through the internet and lands on your computer and comes out of your speakers or your headphones. Um, and step five, you hear it. You then have to, I suppose, deconstruct it. You have to make sense of what was said, how it was said, what was it? Was it an instruction? Was it a joke? Um, you know, should I respond to this? What's 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 the the, ne the necessary reaction? Um, and then once you've made that decision, I suppose you have to decide on how you act. So whenever you see it as not a one-step, two-step process, you know, I speak, you speak, I speak, you speak, I speak, you speak, but uh, I speak, that means I have an idea that I formulate into language that I then mechanically formulate into language that you then interpret. Whenever we see communication as being that kind of a process rather than a, a two-way street, um, which can often seem like a two-way street whenever you're communicating with people that you're familiar with in a language that is consistent for the both of you as a native language. Um, then we can start to understand the importance of clarity whenever we give instruction, whenever we interact with others, and whenever we share ideas, particularly whenever we're dealing with people from different parts of the world. Nonverbal communication. Uh, this can be important as well. Now, again, I didn't really go into this much at the start, but this is not a session on cultural intelligence. This is not a session which seeks to point out, um, you know, cultural nuances across the world. It's not a session that says, uh, you know, you shouldn't, in a professional context in Japan, you should not cross your legs because showing the soles of your feet to somebody else is considered to be disrespectful, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. There are hundreds of thousands, there are probably millions of different small, minute kind of cultural differences in that way. What we're talking about here, remember, is the approach, the how do we interpret um, situations that we're in, how do we interpret difference, and how do we not allow our existing biases to inhibit us in that way. So with nonverbals can be very important as well. You know, eye contact can be very important, um, and it can be important for opposite reasons. So if you are, um, you know, shaking somebody's hand, uh, maybe it's a professional contact in, in, in the States, in, in America, and you're meeting them for the first time, you're shaking their hand, it's important that you have a firm grip in your handshake and that you look them in the eye whenever you shake their hand. Um, similarly, in Spain, whenever, um, you know, in the same way as we do, here, in the same way it's done all over the world, you know, if you're out for drinks with people and they go cheers, or salud, um, or brindes, whatever it is, um, and you clink your glasses with somebody, it is so important in Spain to maintain eye contact with the person whose glass you're clinking. Um, and in fact, I've, I've been pulled a number of times on that. I've been told off. Well, you didn't look me in the eye. What are you doing? And I sort of thought, oh, no, but we clink glasses. I was focusing on not breaking my glass. Um, 
you know, nonverbals can play such a significant role in meaning in different cultures. And it can be difficult to be an expert on that, if not impossible to be an expert on that before you've had exposure to them. Um, but things to bear in mind, um, people often ask me questions. I'm a cultural awareness trainer. So they ask me, look, Thomas, you know, I, I'm not really interested in the whole, you know, hours and hours and hours of work. But, you know, how can I not offend people? Can you tell me how not to offend people? That's really just what I want to get out of this. Um, and I think really the idea that getting something like this wrong, particularly whenever you're greeting somebody for the first time um, as being offensive, I, I just, I don't agree. I think offending somebody is so much more about the intent of what you're doing or what you're saying or the way that you're acting than it is, you know, I, I, I do believe that you can't offend people accidentally, but that it is a lot, it's, it's rare um, and it's a lot more rare perhaps than I think people would say. And I, I would be open to ideas that contradict that or that disagree with that. Um, but just from my own experience, not knowing all of the rules in other cultures and getting by whenever I find myself in them, um, I think it's all about the respect that you're showing and the intent behind what you're doing rather than you know, the rule that you didn't know how to follow quite so accurately. Um, imagine yourself, um, you know, somebody that you're meeting from a different cultural background, if they did something that didn't quite fit in with your culture, it doesn't mean that you're offended by them. It means that you kind of acknowledge, oh, yeah, they do that differently. And it's similar for us in different cultures. People will understand that as well. But it is something to consider, you know, particularly if in a professional context, you want to make a good impression. Um, certainly, these are things that you maybe want to do a little bit of reading up on or read around or, you know, look at online forums that discuss these kinds of things and see if you can get catch any clues there around um, physical contact, um, physical space, like we talked about earlier, how close or how far away perhaps um, it is normal or standard to, to be in different cultures. Shaking hands and indeed the, the gender issue with perhaps still in some parts of the Middle East, um, you know, you perhaps would shake hands and, and would be um, quite physical uh, with a, a member of the same gender, um, but with a member of a different gender, there may be um, things that would look very different or uh, let's say behaviors that would look quite different um, in, than to, to my culture that, that, that I grew up in, my native culture. And again, that's one perhaps for a further conversation a different day. Um, what can you do then? Um, like I say, you can't be an expert on all cultures before you interact with them. Um, yeah. Yeah, that's a good point, Matthew. I'm just going to push on a little bit, um, but I will certainly come back um, to that point. Um, if there's time at the end, I just don't want to run out of time and lose people here. Um, so how do, how do you act? What do you do? I think, you know, staying neutral, like I say, imagine it. Um, you know, I always kind of picture in my head traveling down through France. Um, I've never done this journey as one journey, but I've been in different parts of France and Spain um, in my life. And certainly my experience of um, you know, being in the north of France, I remember being surprised. I was quite young the first time I was there. And whenever I was introduced to people, they would give me one kiss on each cheek. And that was nice. And I thought, okay, I understand French introductions now. Um, and I was ready for that. Then in the south of France, I was introduced to um, some friends of the family, if you like, uh, whenever I was younger. And all of a sudden, two kisses didn't cut it. It wasn't one kiss on each cheek. It was two kisses on each cheek. It was... And that was for every individual person that you were being introduced to. Um, and the first time it happened to me, I was kind of completely thrown. I wasn't expecting it. I was shocked. But then the second and third time that it happened, you know, it's fine. It's something that you very quickly acclimatize to. I think if you stay open and you don't try and, um, you know, for example, if you're meeting, um, you know, Japanese friends or colleagues or somebody that works for your company that's based in the Tokyo office, is coming um, for a, an offsite meeting and you meet them for the first time, you know, do you bow to them the first time that you meet them? 
I think uh, reacting is much better than kind of overplaying it or over-researching it. I think open posture less is more positivity is universal. So it's your approach rather than what you actually do. Um, and speaking clearly is much, much more important than uh, I think in many cases than understanding exactly the cultural rules um, that, that are at play there. I mean, as some of you may be well familiar with the fact that in Japan, um, buying is, is commonplace, um, certainly in a professional environment. Um, however, you might also be familiar with the fact that buying at different heights indicates for, uh, different things. Um, and certainly you don't want to offend somebody more by not buying enough or buying too much, you know, um, in that kind of a way. So I think, you know, positivity is universal and reflect what they do rather than always trying to get it right before, before you know exactly um, what is expected. But speaking clearly, um, particularly whenever somebody is communicating with you in a language that is not their native language, um, is is so so important and actually in my opinion more important um, than the other areas there navigating language barriers these are just a few quick tips um really um i think whenever it comes to specific types of communication for specific purposes there are quick wins um, that we can uh, bear in mind i know these are things that all from my own experience um, have really helped me in the past so how can we best share information um you know i do I've worked with students kind of at all levels of language learning, even, you know, post postgraduates and things. Um, and one of the things that you notice consistently is that whenever people have, you know, really, really developed and advanced language skills, they still kind of struggle sometimes with certain things. And one of the things that um, people often struggle with um, is numbers or numerical information. Um, when you're maybe giving somebody a phone number or you're giving somebody a contact number that you want them to follow up with um, or you're giving them any kind of numerical information, it is a very quick win to write it down. You know what I mean? The numbers are different in, in every language, uh, kind of German. Eins, zwei, drei, uno, dos, tres, uno, dois, tres, un, deux, trois, one, two, three. Lang you know, the language that we're speaking dictates how the number signs. However, if you think about it, writing down a number, the number one, the number two, the number three, that is universal. Um, and so that can be something that can really uh, bridge that gap, particularly if the person that you're trying to interact with, their level of English is, is very, very low. Also instructions, particularly sequential information. If you're saying, you know, I want to meet you next Tuesday um, outside the city hall at 10 o'clock, or I want you to meet me in my office next Wednesday at three o'clock, that might sound like one instruction, but actually it's sequential. It's three pieces of information. It's next Wednesday, my office, three o'clock. If you get any one of those things wrong in your understanding of them as the person that you're communicating with, um, then you're not going to be there. You're going to be there on the wrong day, in the wrong place, or at the wrong time. Um, so whenever we're giving that kind of information, follow-up emails can often be useful, or even just if you have a pen and paper in front of you, writing down the instructions so that they know they haven't misheard um, and they're not kind of stressed about it in that way. Very quick wins to just, you know, to write things down for people so that they can go away and interact with that language away from you whenever they have the time to make sure that they fully understand it. Using appropriate language, not using overly complex language if you're speaking to somebody whose language level you know is, is um, maybe not, um, not there, not able to make the most of that. Like I, say, like I said with the simple key stage one activity, when you're communicating, your focus should be on the person that you're communicating with and their ears and their mind and what they're able to do with the information that you're giving them. That is, I, th I think, the key to success in communication, generally speaking. And using diagrams is very useful. Um, we're often very near a screen, like we mentioned. Often we have a phone in our pocket or we're sitting at a computer screen or there's one close by. If you're trying to describe something to somebody and they're really not coming with you, they don't have the, the vocabulary to understand the certain thing that you're talking about, 
we you know it's a click away from a google image search to get you know something that will um that will help them to understand oh yeah this is what we mean or indeed if we're trying to give directions and we can bring up a map we can say you know we are here you need to go here which takes away the need for them to understand um you know you take the second right whenever you get to the bottom of botanic avenue and go straight um and then turn left and then turn you know that can, everybody knows what it's like to try and hold directions in your head whenever you ask them for them um, but not just with directions. I mean, if you're speaking about something specific to your field, your area of study, you're maybe researching with somebody and you feel like their English is very good, but at times their vocabulary is a bit lacking, that's a very considerate thing to to kind of to, to be having these skill sets. Um, yeah, that's an interesting one. I'll come back to that one, Ashin. Um, phone communication as well. Just whenever you don't have the visual cues, uh, it can be quite intimidating to speak on the phone. I certainly, whenever I first moved to Spain and had to get an apartment uh, to live in, the thing that scared me the most, um, I was quite, I was okay speaking to people in, uh, in public and things, but whenever I had to phone somebody I didn't know, I was always so intimidated by the fact that, you know, I hadn't had a lot of Spanish phone conversations in my life and, and you know, that I, I might, something might go wrong, that stress of it, um, you know, even though the phone calls always kind of went fine, the stress of it was was real. Um, so if after a phone conversation, you know, you haven't been able to write down numbers or write down instructions like I've just advised, again, follow-up emails, really, really good idea in that context, and managing your speech on the phone because you don't have the nonverbal cues um, for, the, for the person to kind of to follow up on and that kind of thing. It is the little things. It can be gestures. What do I mean by this slide? What I'm going to encourage all of you to do is you don't have to turn your mics on or anything, but I would encourage you wherever you are sitting um, to repeat after me, please. And hopefully you're in a space where that is acceptable and you're not going to be distracting anybody. Um, what I mean here or what the point of this slide is, this little listen and repeat is that gestures can often mean a lot. You can't become an expert in every language in the world. Um, I, I guess I've kind of tried to at different times of my life and I've failed miserably in many ways. Um, I've done well with some languages, but uh, not so well with others. Um, but what you can do very quickly and with access to the internet, it really doesn't take any time at all, is to pick up a little phrase here and there. What I'm saying is if you were um, working with, if you're researching with, if you're studying with, or if you're socially friendly with um, somebody that is always speaking to you in English, and English is not their first language, um, I think the gesture of saying something to them in their own language, as much as it is a gimmick, fair enough, I'll, I'll accept that. It, it can be seen as a gimmicky thing to do. I actually believe that the gesture of it um, is significant. Um, I think it shows kind of a, a recognition of, you know, you're choosing to speak your second language to me all the time, which exposes you. It means that you're making mistakes and you maybe don't like that. Nobody really likes making mistakes whenever they speak. Um, but I think that the gesture of maybe saying something a line or two in their language to them, I think is a real, uh, it's a nice thing to do. It shows that you're on the same side as them. And, and even if you do it badly, it's nearly even better because, you know, you're saying, you know, this is how bad I would be. Like, you know, I'm terrible at this basic phrase in your language and you're able to communicate with me about complex ideas in mine. It is, it's about respect, I think. So just to repeat after me to prove to yourself that you can indeed do it and I'm going to fire on through them. Uh, so Spanish, first of all, hola, hola, you should be saying, adios, bonjour, au revoir. Guten Tag, auf Wiedersehen, buongiorno, you got to sing the Italian one, buongiorno, arrivederci, ni hao, tai chia, konnichiwa, sayonara, marhaban, masalama, hola, a te avista, and namaste. Don't forget namaste in the hands. Okay. 
Thanks very much, Rui, um, for that quick note. Okay, so the point of that kind of listen and repeat is not that you become kind of competent in any one of these languages. It's just that it's very easy to do a little bit, particularly with access to the internet to coach you. Um, and I do think as much as that might come across as a gimmick, I don't think that it does. And certainly where people make an effort um, to speak to you in your own language whenever you're speaking to them in your second language all the time, it's it's often a gesture rather than, um, you know, the the whole thing if you like the whole pie beyond today's session um you know i would love to 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 speak with you further i'd love to see you all face to face in a session i think that would really um be beneficial for me um and for you guys as well it's just the sessions work better that way we can do group work we can do a lot more of interactive kind of activities and things like that um but especially while we're in lockdown especially while we're in the situation that we're in i think you can develop your own cultural awareness and remember my idea of it is that cultural awareness is an approach that's ongoing that we we continually develop um, throughout our lives. And there's great content out there online, but like anything, and like we were saying about the media earlier, there's such a range of everything online. There's such a range of good and bad content. Um, what I would encourage you to consider is, you know, in wanting to develop your cultural understanding, why is it that you want to do that? Obviously, there's a real gold star reason to do that, which is, I suppose, to develop your skill set um, and prepare yourself for interview questions in multinational companies or companies that have international clients for that reason. But let's be authentic. Let's be real. What are your interests as individuals? My interests, um, I'm big into music, uh, love live music, um, and love global music, love all kinds of music, really. I don't have time to go into all of that. Um, love sports as well, quite interested in philosophy. Um, I suppose I'm quite interested in politics, obviously interested in language learning. And so I kind of look into those areas, if you like. If you're interested in history or politics or all of those things, consider how all of those areas maybe look different in different parts of the world. Or, um, you know, you can be more specific. You can be on the nose about it, if you like, um, with your online content. So if you want to develop your cultural awareness, um, actually have a PDF that I'd be happy to share with everybody um, on this that maybe highlights, you know, a few of the um, online TED Talks that we would maybe recommend. There's a lot of TED Talks there around different areas, around cultural communication, intercultural competence, the importance of culture in the workplace. Um, they're very Googleable. Um, and very easily accessible. Um, YouTube content, similarly, you know, interviews with interesting people. Um, also, if you've you've kind of Netflix and things like that, then you can um, you can see a range of content on there. Um, I particularly enjoy the the TV chef who sadly passed away not so long ago, Anthony Bourdain's um, kind of eating around the world series, where um, he goes to different cultures and engages with them and has the food. And I mean, it's shot; it's quite Americanized, and it's shot through that lens, but. Um, I feel like I get, a, especially in lockdown, I get a little bit of escapism and travel um, through watching those. Podcasts, panel sessions, things that you can access online for free. Again, these are all only a Google search away. Um, it was quite an interesting podcast I heard on Monday night there. I think it's called Renegade. It's uh, Barack Obama and Bruce Springsteen in conversation. But the first episode of that podcast um, really focuses on culture. And obviously, in the United States at the minute, um, there is a, <clears throat> really a focus on conversations around race and equality and, um, and rights more generally speaking and things like that. It's an interesting time to look at how a society is dealing with its own culture and some of the issues that are arising um, from, from cultural difference and, and lack of 
uh, intercultural understanding, I think, more than anything else. So there's a lot of content online. Online, I would encourage you to consider what your interest is specifically, as well as you know having a generic interest in this topic, because I promise you, culture is a default interesting um, concept to consider. Um, and hopefully, you know, some of the areas that we've talked about today have been helpful and have encouraged you to to want to develop that further. I think from some of the questions that you're asking me, I can see that you do consider these things already, which is really positive. And that's actually where being in the same room is so much more beneficial because we can take the conversation way up a level beyond an introduction to cultural awareness session, if that is what the appetite is for. Foreign language content as well. I would encourage everybody, obviously, as manager of the language center, to develop their language skills where possible. In addition to that, um, you know that question I talked about earlier in multinational companies, companies doing business internationally, always wanting to be able to identify why you specifically, as opposed to all of the other candidates, would fit in well to their company. Well, if that company has offices across the world, my partner works for a company. Thank you, Stephen. Um, my partner works for a company um, with an office in Belfast that started out in New York, has offices in Seattle and San Francisco, but also in Hong Kong um, and in China and in Zurich as well. So, I mean, in that kind of a company, you got to expect in the interview process that they're going to maybe reflect on, you know, how do you feel you would be, you would fit well into that kind of an environment, kind of fast paced multinational environment. Um, I would obviously encourage you to develop your language skills, like I say, and not be put off by foreign language content particularly foreign language films, excuse me, which I've always found really insightful. I mean, I'm, I'm a bit of a movie fan anyway, but um, the difference in, for example, Spanish media or Spanish films or French films or German films versus what we see coming out of Hollywood and independent, um, perhaps Irish films and British films as well. Um, I think you do get, whenever you see content coming not out of Hollywood, let's say, you get a sense of a culture in a film. Um, and it doesn't necessarily matter what the film's about. Um, Narcos has done so much for Spanish learners, I think, particularly students. Um, and I've watched the Narcos series as well. Um, and it's not because I'm a fan of crime series or series that focus on uh, you know, drug cartels and violence and police investigations. I think I enjoy the kind of the Spanish cultural elements within it. I enjoy keeping my own Spanish up, obviously, from a linguistic perspective. Um, but there's so much that you can get from that. Don't be afraid of the subtitles, I guess, is what I'm trying to say um, whenever you're engaging with content. Um, cultural documentaries, documentaries that seek to look specifically at culture can often be an interesting way to look at them, although sometimes you maybe need to look out for the bias in those um, or the predominant bias. It doesn't mean they're not useful. It just means it can be helpful for you to be able to identify it. Um, and more globally produced content. What I mean is when you're watching films, don't just watch Hollywood films. Obviously, you probably don't do that anyway um, exclusively, but something to bear in mind. Um, and what can you learn about the world through these screens? How can we use the screens that control us for good, I think is the point I'm trying to make, rather than um, just to burn, uh, burn the time away, if you like. And really, self-reflection, understanding your own strengths and areas for improvement. Where do you think you could develop? That's a personal question for you to kind of ask yourself. Uh, but again, in a group, um, it's, it's maybe easier for us to talk about that as a group a little bit and think what might the main areas be for you to develop versus this other person versus this other person versus what I think my own areas for development are and for understanding. Um, like I say, I think cultural intelligence as separate to cultural awareness is useful and is an, as, is an admirable pursuit. So cultural intelligence being an understanding of exactly what cultures look like and how you could assimilate if you were to move to that. Um, yeah, that's a good point, Lucia, actually. A great thing about international movies is that the, lang the language itself tell a lot about the culture and beliefs through sayings, for example. So yeah, um, 
I think whenever you watch Spanish films, for example, if you're not really familiar with Spanish culture, you'll notice um, when you're reading the subtitles how many of the idioms relate to uh, religion and faith and God. You know, God, Dios is there all the time. And we use God a lot in English as well. Oh, my God. Um, is a commonly used expression, perhaps too commonly used expression. Um, but that's a real basic uh, kind of example of it. But it's yeah, you see, you see a culture through um, the language that's used. Absolutely. So I hope that that wasn't too rushed there. That last one. Um, certainly beyond today's session, like I said, we have access to so much content online. It's just that we don't have access to consistent um, content in terms of the quality of it. So sometimes you got to go through a few things that maybe don't draw your attention. But I'd encourage you to really lean into the things that do draw your attention. Think about what you're already interested in and how you can perhaps understand that a little bit better in a different culture. Certainly consider your area of study and how that looks in different cultures. And are there different kind of uh, norms or beliefs, um, even about um, things that are considered to be factual or approaches in different cultures that you can learn from. Not that you all of a sudden assume this new belief, but that you consider it whenever you're considering things more uh, more broadly. Same thing with Arabic with regards to religion and idioms. Yes, absolutely. Um, inshallah, and, and using the term Allah, um, Allah really appears a hell of a lot in um, whenever you're speaking um, in Arabic. Um, you'll find it in an idiomatic way used uh, throughout the language, again, in the same way that we use God um, in English. Um, this is kind of a little bit of a statement that normally accompanies these sessions. Working with individuals across different cultural backgrounds can pose a range of challenges. It is impossible to become an expert in all of the diverse cultural nuances that may arise. However, the key is to be sensitive and respectful of these differences and react with an approach which is empathetic and understanding. This isn't something that I want you to think about all the time, whenever, particularly whenever you're in a professional, multicultural working environment. It's something which will normalize very quickly, I think, for you. It's not something you have to focus on all the time. It's really whenever it comes to that, number one, not allowing, not allowing your own bias to prejudice yourself against an idea or a person or a suggestion, um, taking that extra kind of five seconds to sanity check um, kind of your contribution, particularly if you're gonna disagree with something or tell somebody that you think that they're wrong. You know, consider how can you phrase that? How can, how can your communication facilitate whatever it is you want to achieve from your communication? So if it's effective collaboration and things like that, then perhaps we don't want to go in with that kind of approach. We want to go in with more of a collaborative approach. Um, and we want to understand that people's views, um, if they differ from our own, they don't differ from us deliberately. They don't go out of their way to differ from us. Their views have been shaped by their life experiences in the same way that ours have been shaped by ours. And again, none of us had any control over where we were born, where the families that we were born into, the societies that we were born into, and the lived experiences that would then follow. Okay, folks, two hours or two hours and seven minutes, my apologies, um, is not long enough. Um, to engage with cultural awareness fully. Um, I mean, 20 years, you could argue, is not long enough to engage with cultural awareness fully. But the idea of today's session was really to consider how we can be developing our approach. I don't believe that you are all beginners, particularly from some of the comments that I've just read. I think a lot of you have considered culture quite extensively already. Um, and again, like I said, love to interact with you more, um, certainly preferably whenever we can get back onto campus and be interacting face to face. And I know that my colleagues would also. There's my email address, um, our webpage and our social media if you're interested in following us on any of that. Please do feel free to follow up with me. Um, I'm happy to go back and have a look at some of the questions um, that were here as well, um, just to comment on those. Um, if there are any additional questions, please do post them. Um, but if anybody does have to get off, I appreciate this was only meant to be a two-hour session and we're now eight minutes over that. So I completely appreciate that. I'd like to thank you all for staying with me. Thank you for your contributions. Um, and thank you for, um, yeah, for 
for taking the time and for going out of your way to come to a session like this. This is increasingly an important thing um, from a professional perspective, but also sociopolitically, we can see um, you know, a lot of reasons why uh, the, these, this kind of understanding is something that we need to develop as, as, a, as a society, as a race, as a human race um, going forward. So thank you. Like I say, I'll just go back now to the questions that I saw. I saw a comment from Ashin I thought was really interesting. You've seen two men, one Dutch and the other Chinese, um, playing Chanqi, uh, Chinese chess, uh, where the Dutchman learned through trial and error and diagrams of movement as well as bartering via a calculator. Wow. I mean, it's, it's always impressive to see people communicating whenever they don't have a mutual language to communicate with. Normally, that means a lot of mime and a lot of, do you want to drink? Would you like something to eat? What time? Sort of that kind of thing. Um, and I think you really kind of see what you're made of when you're put in a position like that. To understand, um, I think, Chanky, is that the, the game that's also referred to as Go? Or maybe that's a different game, Chinese chess. Um, to be able to learn the complexities and the rules of a game like that. Um, I mean, that is, that's really impressive. Well done to that man. Um, and Matthew, you'd mentioned to revisit media, social media and news organizations do make it seem like offending someone is around every corner when that isn't true. That's it. I mean, like I say, offense to me um, is, is really about the intent. Um, that's not to say that you can't offend somebody without intending to, I think, it's if if your intent is not to uh, to offend somebody but to respect them, uh, I think that will very often or in the majority of cases come through. I don't go out of my way to be offended by people um, whenever they don't act a certain way or they act a way that's different um, to what I would expect them to act. And I don't think most of you would either. I think that's a, a general human kind of trait. Um, obviously, context um, can be linked in there as well, um, the context of the way that we're acting. But I think if your intentions are respectful with people and positive, positivity is universal. Um, and I think that particularly where you don't have a language in common that you can speak or there is there are barriers to you understanding one another people will seek out that positivity is this person you know has are their intentions positive or negative with me and how are they acting to reinforce one of those two ideas um i think with people that you're interacting with regularly in a working environment like we've been talking about at times um you know it's unlikely um that you're going to struggle with that a lot once you get to know somebody because you will you know they will get to know you they'll get to understand the values that you have and things like that uh, and Matthew's just come back with, you just wanted to clarify that it's often a case of the media blowing something out of proportion to get those clickbait. That's it. That's it. I mean, particularly on social media where you see news stories being shared, um, the, you know, the fundamental goal there is how many clicks can we get on this, not how can we most accurately or appropriately or respectfully report what has happened there. And it's just something to bear in mind. And it's been the case for a long time, I guess. Um, well, not that long. It's evolved a lot over the past 15 years, I think. If you go back 15 to 20 years, then mobile phones didn't have access to all of the media outlets on them. They only had Snake 2, and you could text and call people, and that was about it. So that change in the past 15 years as well is something that we may reflect in, in 10 or 20 years whenever we have legislation that's there to perhaps protect this a little more, um, certainly to protect our young people from misinformation, which I think is so much, it's important to protect everybody from misinformation, but I think that's that's a real danger um, if we have this kind of unpoliced access to information online. I know we have parental controls and things like that, but I think we know that life finds a way, as Jeff Goldblum says in, in Jurassic Park. Um, and yeah, it's something that I think we will reflect on in 10 years and think, God, you remember in 2021, whenever you know that was the way that it was just standard to be able to to report something in that way even though it didn't happen that way 
It'll be interesting to see, won't it? Okay. Well, like I say, folks, thank you all to the seven of you that have stayed with me, even though I've ran over in 22 minutes over now. Um, like I say, if anybody has any further thoughts or anything they'd like to, um, to find out more about, or to, not really to find out more about, just to discuss with me further, please do feel free to email me directly um, on the email address there, t.smith at qub.ac.uk. And I am, if there are no further questions or comments, going to sign off now. So it's been strange. I haven't seen you. I haven't been able to interact and speak directly with you. Um, but thank you for all of your comments and for, um, for participating in today's session. You have been listening to Find Your Future, a podcast from careers, employability and skills at Queen's University Belfast. For more career helps and advice, visit go.qb.ac.uk slash careers.